You're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. The view from our side of the cockpit door. WAPG. It's the Airline Pilot Guy. Airline Pilot Guy episode 419. Hello, you're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show, the view from our side of the cockpit door with your host, Captain Jeff, broadcasting live from Studio 1A at the socially distant APG headquarters in Roswell, Georgia. Today's show is recorded on the 2nd of April, 2020. In today's episode, commercial aviation is feeling the effects of COVID-19. A foundation operating World War II vintage aircraft can no longer accept paying passengers following a crash last year. More news, your feedback, and in today's plane tales, the triangle. So get all settled in, tray tables and seat backs in the upright and locked positions. Electronic devices powered on. I'm Radio Roger. Flight 419 is ready for pushback. Thank you, Radio Roger. <laughs> uh, I don't know. Did, did, is it just me, or did his voice sound a little coarse or hoarse? Yeah, yeah. yeah. He did sound hope a little uh, hope, hope you're doing okay over there in New York City, uh, Roger. Uh, let's see. He is a, an Emmy Award-winning TV and radio reporter, currently at the number one all-news station in the nation, 1010 Wins, in New York City, which is the basically the epicenter for the coronavirus here in the U.S. at this time. And we're recording this on the, as you said, the 2nd of April. And uh, welcome, everyone, to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. It's an aviation podcast covering the latest in aviation news and answering your feedback. And I'm Captain Jeff, a former U.S. Air Force pilot and currently a captain for a major legacy airline based in Atlanta, Georgia. And we'd like to call that Acme Airlines. And today I'm joined... From the Magic City, world traveler, airline mechanic, Breitling Cognoscenti, fitness hound, and international air freight captain, it's Miami Rick. Hey, everybody. How's everybody doing out there? Great. Glad to have you with us today. And also joining us today from his studio in the English countryside, a professional photographer, former RAFRAAF fighter pilot, retired captain for an international airline based in London. It's Captain Nick. Well, hi there, Jeff. I'm still alive. I'm not dead yet. <laughs> you're not dead yet. It's brilliant. <laughs> Glad that you're still here with us, with the living. And also joining us from the Northwest Atlanta suburbs, barbecue master, motorcycle rider, pleasure boat skipper, underwater photographer, and captain for a major U.S. legacy carrier, it's Captain Dana. Hey, everybody. Great to see everyone today. Great to see you as well. And at some point in the near future, we'll be joined by Dr. Steph. Right now, she is on a business call, a very important one. So uh, hopefully she'll be able to join us by the time we're doing our Getting to Know You segment. But until then, why don't we just jump right into the news. Stand by for news.
All right. Let's start with the first item in our news folder. You know the sad story. Um, what was it? A couple of months ago now, the uh, crash of the World War II uh, B seventeen um, at Bradley International Airport. Uh, this news article from the current uh, k or c o u r a n t dot com in Connecticut. Uh, by uh, writer David Owens. The headline, FAA says, owner of World War II bomber involved in deadly Bradley crash did not take safety seriously and can no longer carry passengers. The FAA, citing safety concerns, has revoked the Collins, Collings Foundation's permission to carry passengers aboard its historic aircraft, one of which crashed and burned at Bradley International Airport in October, killing seven. Wow, was it that long ago? I didn't realize. I just yeah, thought it was a few months, months ago. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Time flies when, you, when you're old, like me. Uh, the World War II B-17G Bomber 909 developed engine trouble shortly after takeoff from Bradley on October 2nd and crashed as the pilot tried to nurse the crippled aircraft back to the airport. Five passengers who paid $450 each to fly aboard the historic aircraft, the pilot and the co-pilot, were killed in the resulting crash and fire. In a decision released Wednesday, Robert Carty, the FAA's Deputy, Deputy Executive Director of Flight Service Standards, found that there were problems with two of the aircraft's four engines and that the Collings Foundation did not follow the requirements of its permission to operate the aircraft and carry passengers and, quote, lacked a safety culture when operating the B-17G. Collings spokesman Hunter Cheney did not respond to an email request for comment Wednesday evening. Uh, Collings of Stowe, Massachusetts, has operated a variety of historic aircraft for three decades and toured the country with what it called its Wings of Freedom tour. And that was a tour that Micah and Max Flight and I attended um, just a week before this fatal accident at Bradley. We went up to, uh, what was it, Auburn, Lewiston uh, in in uh, Maine. Uh, let's see. So... Uh, it looks like the FAA decision uh, revoked the permission that this organization uh, had obtained to offer flights for pay and denies the organization's request to extend that permission for the 10 aircraft it's own, it owns, including a B-17 it obtained to replace the one that crashed at Bradley. Oh, I didn't know that. They'd already oh, replaced wow. it. Okay. So what do you think about this? Uh, I guess they were doing some poking around and decided that uh, I'm kind of uh, kind of shocked actually uh, you know we we went up there and interviewed several of the people in the in the foundation and, and didn't of course you know it was just a an afternoon that we were there basically I'm, I'm not sure how how much you can gather as far as their uh, their safety culture is concerned but uh, there there didn't seem to me to be anything concerning but you know I didn't. Uh, obviously, heard about the accident. It's very sad indeed. But I didn't. I didn't really um, get too deep into what exactly happened with the with the engine because it was it was engine an engine issue, correct? Yeah, number four was um, missing quite a bit. I mean, not missing, gone, but uh, you know, misfiring. And I guess um, there must have been some issue with the uh, number three engine as well. Um, but uh, four was almost completely not. May, uh, making any power at all. And then the number three was also ailing, I believe. Um, it, but yeah. I was just fl flicking through the report. Um, mm -hmm. I have to say it 
it was very, very disappointing uh, from a maintenance point of view, Jeff, because what I saw is extremely basic uh, maintenance requirements like maintaining the right gap in both magnetos and spark mm. plugs, something that anyone who's owned a car and done their own maintenance uh, are intimately familiar with, how they could have allowed such basic um, engineering functions to have fallen by the wayside to the point where magnetos were giving out and engines were producing much less thrust than they should have done yeah. uh, is very, uh, you know, incredibly disappointing. Quite an indictment on their engineering culture and their safety culture. I'm very sad to to read this. I, mm -hmm. you know, I hope there's some good explanation for it. Now, is the uh, was the uh, maintenance? Uh the engineering team was it a uh, part of the, or uh, it assigned specifically to these uh, to these aircraft, or was it on a volunteer basis? Or I'm not sure if it's volunteer or paid, but uh, I think all the maintenance was uh, performed by the people in the on the flying team at the uh, foundation, hmm. as far as I know. And I imagine, I imagine the fact that the feds have put the kibosh on them, uh, you know, getting some again compensation for these flights is gonna it's gonna hurt their ability to fundraise and keep these birds alive, which is it's a, it's another byproduct of you know this sad uh, sad accident because yeah. how how else are they gonna be able to are they gonna be able to um, finance this? Yeah, I don't know. You know, they they did you know rely upon those those uh, rides uh, that they were giving out to the to the public. Mm. Um, yeah, I think there are people in the chat room who are as amazed as we are because, uh, as Al said, so you really expect people who are involved with this to who make it the love of their life to uh, be like. Uh, I know I, I chatted to the guys who maintained uh, Betsy's biscuit bomber when I uh, it came across for the uh, uh, the um, D Day. Uh, memorial flights that they had over here uh, and they just spent their their lives tinkering with the airplane looking after it polishing it making sure that everything was fine the aircraft had a lot of downtime so they had time to get in there and sort stuff out and uh, if that wasn't happening i'm i'm just a wee bit surprised i really yeah am. i am too it says uh, an inspection of maintenance records lack key information and in some cases indicate maintenance was either not performed at all or was performed in a manner contrary to the requirements. So, yeah, I guess okay. it's, it's a good thing that they shut them down as far as, you know, exposing well, anybody else to uh, yeah. safety. Yeah. Lack the one safety. good thing is, of course, these are incredibly valuable aircraft, and there are enough enthusiasts out there to carry on the good work, If even if the Collins, Found, Collins Foundation can't continue to operate them in the future. Somebody will take these aircraft, these wonderful aircraft, on and make sure that they're still available for the public to see and hopefully well, fly in. Yeah, and that's the thing is that they just can't sell rides on it anymore. So, you know, somebody out there will have the funds, and th th there's nothing that says here that the aircraft can't fly. It's just that foundation uh, is no longer able to sell um, rides yep. on it anymore. So yep. they'll yep. still be able to be flown yeah, as long yeah. as they're properly maintained. All right, the second item in our news folder is uh, this. Serve Air Cargo Boeing 727 Freighter rolls out of control after emergency landing. On March 21st, 2020, a Serve Air Cargo Boeing 727-200 freighter departed from Kinshasa. Is that right, guys? Kinshasa. Kinshasa. 
uh, Democratic Republic of, Con- of the Congo when it was forced to turn back after experiencing a hydraulic problem shortly after takeoff. The crew members were able to safely land, clearing the runway before coming to a stop. Just after the pilots vacated the aircraft via the emergency slides, the aircraft started to roll back. The 727 freighter crossed the runway with the nose gear momentarily going airborne as the aircraft planted itself into a grassy, soft spot. It's unclear why the freighter was not chalked after stopping, but based on the limited data, it sounds as if sufficient time had passed by for a ground crew to secure the aircraft. At least it appears that the 727 can live to tell the tale, which is good. Now, let me um, go here and actually uh, play this uh somebody was uh, taking some video of this from their phone i believe uh, close by so, if you don't speak this language i don't either uh, they're they're looking out the window and they're watching the 727 roll backwards <laughs> Well, the first bloke saying the, the idiot forgot to put the chucks in. Whoa! <laughs> and there Whoa. it goes. I love oh, it. Oh, somebody's in big trouble there, saying. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, that poor airplane. Um, mm. and it, this reminds me of um, uh, one of the captains that I, I used to fly with when I was flying the 727. Um, he uh, was telling us of a uh, a story that happened at Billings uh, Airport in uh, Montana, and he had uh, parked. I guess they needed the the gate for another airplane coming in, so they parked the seven twenty seven off, kind of near the edge of the ramp. Billings Airport is kind of built on this. Um, what do they call that? A bluff or a plateau or like a plateau? Yeah, yeah, and uh, and so and it's not super level. Uh, it's mostly level, but there is a little bit of a grade to it. And uh, so he said that they shut down the aircraft and I guess he assumed that it had been chalked and they went out the the back of the airplane via the uh, rear air stairs and were walking away from the airplane and, and then somebody kind of coming in the opposite direction toward them and the airplane behind them where they were running and screaming and you know, he, he, he said he turned around and the airplane was slowly moving backwards and you know if it kept on going it would have gone off the <laughs> it would have been a oh, wow. big mess I don't think there was anything there to, to catch it um, I can't remember exact all the details of the story but he went back and you know quickly ran ran through the back air stairs got on the airplane and made it up to the front and um i think he said so what had happened is you know you, when you set the um, the brakes the parking brakes it relies on hydraulic pressure and if you don't have something to keep the hydraulic pressure up uh over time even if you have a brake accumulator it mm-hmm. that pressure drops and it just you know it, if you're not chalked and you're and the airplane's on a grade it's going to start moving and he said that in his panic, the only thing he could think of was to start the APU uh, and get that going to get the you know hydraulic pressure from that, uh, or you know run the electric hydraulic pumps and get some pressure and everything else. And he said he just bar- it just barely happened in enough time to stop the airplane from going over oh, the wow. edge of this thing. And I said, why didn't you just go in there and just take the pneumatic brake handle and you know break the safety wire and just turn that thing and pull it? And he goes, I didn't think of it. <laughs> he was he was just oh, panicking gosh. and he said he just and i kind of yeah. i understand that i remember uh leaving leaving my car in the parking lot 
um, and, and toward the bus stop years and years ago, my old BMW 320i that uh, caught on fire. Um, and, uh, and I was panicking, trying to put this fire out and pop the hood open. I thought it was just a, a leak, uh, like a, like one of the hoses from the, uh, cooling system. And maybe it was just coolant on the hot, um, engine block was, was making the steam and I opened it up and no, it was fire. And I thought, Oh crap. So I ran around to the back of the, uh, the car, opened up the trunk, pulled out this car cover that I had bought maybe. 15, 20 years before and hardly ever used, but I knew it was still there. So I took this thing out and I just threw it and just basically snuffed out the fire with this um, car cover that was a uh, cotton made of, made of cotton, I think. But then after the whole thing, and I had a chance to kind of think about what had happened. I think I was on the bus to the, uh, to the uh, uh, concourse uh, to start my trip. And I thought, you idiot right behind me in the car. I bought specifically for this kind of situation, a Halon fire extinguisher. <laughs> and it was right behind my seat and I didn't even think of it. I mean, wow. what an idiot. I could have just pulled that thing out, just, you know, nonchalantly. Uh, well, I tell you, in the heat in the moment, that's what, that's exact. And I'm not saying this is what happened, but that's why we have checklists, you know, yes. there's uh, so before, before you get out of the airplane, you, you, if whatever the situation is, you're supposed to, you know, run through that checklist. And, and it, in case you, uh, in case of an evacuation or you find yourself leaving the aircraft in some haste, you know, that's what you read. And it's it's conveniently located in the back of that quick reference handbook. And you just pick that up and it actually goes through what you should do before you get out of the airplane. It's a lot of times you go through these. And I can tell you this is fresh in my mind because this is all I've been doing for the last three <laughs> weeks. Going through these rejected takeoff scenarios and uh First thing you got to do is you got to set the brakes because sometimes you'll have one engine fail, the un- the other engine still going, the other engine still has some sort of residual thrust to it, even though it's an an, an idle power. And if you don't have the brakes on, you're gonna start rolling away. You know, and then before you get out of the airplane, you got to make sure that you shut down the engines, you secure the the failed engine because you've, uh, oftentimes you see, and I can think of at least two or three incidents when that have been caught on tape of uh, passengers evacuating and now uh, one of the engines still going. And you see that uh, you see that uh, that escape uh, slide kind of blowing in the wind there. So there's a, there's an order and a a sequence to everything here. Now, as you mentioned the accumulator, and yes, the accumulator is. Uh, I, I never flew the. I never did fly the seven twenty seven. But uh, if you know, they said they had some kind of hydraulic issue here, and you can see that by by the way the leading edge devices are deployed there. Um, and yeah, accumulator pressure. All that is is really an accumulator is a. a it's like a small, smaller uh, hydraulic reservoir that uh, that uh, holds a, a a volume of hydraulic fluid, and that accumulator is kind of divided in half. And half of it is the hydraulic fluid, and the other half is is a uh, precharge of uh, nitrogen or some kind of gas to a certain to a certain pressure. And so, when the primary system used for brakes is not there, that accumulator is enough to maintain to apply those brakes. But as you said that pressure does run out. And so that's why you have to make sure that before that pressure runs out, you put those chocks in. And after you come to a stop, particularly in the gate, you don't want to keep those brakes on too long because you won't give the brakes a chance to cool down for the next step, uh, for the next trip. So you want to yeah. you know, come in, put the brakes on, look for the maintenance guy, make sure you're chocked in, release the brakes, and pick a spot outside and see if you're moving. 
Yeah. Before, you know, before you, you know, for, you know, before but don't, you get up don't look at the jetway though, because the jetway actually may be moving and it may like freak you out thinking. Yeah, exactly. Like, <laughs> don't holy, we're moving. Right, Are you okay? Right, right, right. Are you okay? Exactly. Yeah, I'm okay. <laughs> so Funny old thing, Jeff, uh, almost exactly this incident uh, happened to me. What? Is that right? Yep. Okay, let's hear uh, about it. <laughs> right. Well, it wasn't uh, an airliner, thank the Lord. I oh, was uh, in a, a tornado, uh-huh. uh, and uh, we were in the front of the hardened aircraft shelter where we kept a pair of aircraft. And the idea was that uh, the front aircraft, um, when you started up, you didn't want to cook the wing of the aircraft behind. So you just started one engine uh, and taxi straight out, and then you uh, would stop and, uh, you know, start the other engine, do your checks, and off you go. So uh, we climbed into this uh, tornado, bearing in mind the wings are all the way back, so it'll fit in, so the wings are back in 67. So I started the left engine, and uh, the tornado had a clever device. It was called a cross-drive clutch, which allowed one engine to power both gearboxes. Hmm. The brakes ran off the right-hand gearbox. So I flicked the cross-drive clutch closed and waved the chocks and taxied out. Now, my mistake was not glancing in to make sure that the hydraulic system on that right-hand engine had pressurized uh, because uh, unbeknown to me, the cross-drive clutch, although I'd selected it, hadn't physically uh, done its job. It wasn't connected. Oops. So I taxied out, and uh, it would normally be fine because uh, taxi out, I, I put the brakes on, and, and the pedals just went to the floor. Nothing happened. But <laughs> they, they, there is a, an emergency accumulator, exactly as Rick described. So I thought, well, that's no problem. I'll just select the emergency brakes and use that accumulator. Try it again. And again, for a second <laughs> time, my feet just went straight <laughs> to the floor. And I went, oh, sugar, <laughs> this is really embarrassing now. So uh, I realized that we couldn't stop the aircraft. And bearing in mind, this is at night. Oh, no. Uh, and we're in amongst um, lots of guys on the ground and the taxiways and hard neck crash shoulders, et cetera. Anyway, I started rolling forward, and everyone's waving their hands over their heads going, stop, stop. <laughs> and I'm just blasting through them and knocking them over like nine pence. And I come out of the hard neck crash shelter onto a bit of the taxiway that leads to the main taxiway. And I thought, well, I've got to stop this damn thing. And I thought, well, I've got thrust reversers. Hey, I was gonna so ask I that. engaged the thrust reversers bought the airplane to a halt, and then I thought, well, I'll just shut the engine down. That'll that'll keep it here. So I shut the engine down, and then I realized I was on a slope. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) So so in pitch black with no lights on now because I've just shut the damned engines down, uh, no radio anymore, nothing, we start rolling backwards. So I thought, well, I'll lift the canopy and just shout at them to get a, a chalk. But the canopy lifts from the same accumulator that powers the brake. I couldn't get the canopy up. Oh, I couldn't lift the canopy up. So I'm just bellowing at the top of my voice through two inches of solid perspex. And luckily, one of them was a bright spark, and he threw a chock under one of the rear wheels, and the aircraft did exactly what that 727 did. It tilted upwards until we were about eight, nine feet in the air. Just before the tail banged, it came thundering back down on the nose wheel and came to a halt. 
And of course, it turned out I'd made a mistake because I hadn't checked the cross-drive clutch. The engineers had made a mistake by not charging the accumulator before we got into it. So oh, it was all very embarrassing. We decided not to go flying that night. Yeah, I <laughs> yeah. think I, I, I think I'd shelve it right then and there. Is there yep. was there an accumulator pressure indicator in that cockpit somewhere? Or? Uh, in the nose wheel bay, yes. Oh, oh nothing it's you a, can in, see. so yeah. not, nothing you could see in the flight deck. Oh no, wow, no. Okay. Yeah, it's wow. funny because it's uh, it's uh, as part of our procedures on uh, every bone I've ever flown. The first uh, hydraulic system that you pressurize is the one that holds the brakes for obvious reasons, right? So there's a there's a sequence to to pressurizing that, and so you turn that uh, that first hydraulic system on, and then the first thing you do is you you look at your um, your brake accumulator charge, and you wait for that to go to three thousand psi, wait for the brake source light to go out, and then you continue on with the rest of your. But yeah. if you don't have if you don't have a gauge in the flight deck, and what the what what good does that do? Just well, I was just there, being there was... a fighter pilot and doing things <laughs> way too fast for my own good. I think it would have been funny if uh, going backwards the other direction that the same people that you bowled over that were going like this, you just waved <laughs> yeah. to them, uh, <laughs> just rolled over them. Yeah, it's like disappeared oh, backwards. Wow. Uh, hey, look! Look who's here. Hang on. Whoops, hey. that's not it. There oh, she um, is. Um, there I we go. recognize that grin. <laughs> Yes, from her lakeside cottage in the Carolinas, we have a marathon runner, a, see, now I don't have my script. Gosh, damn uh, it. Um, I don't even on. know what to say. Marathon runner, strength training junkie. From our lakeside home in the Carolinas, doctor, skydiver, marathon runner, strength training junkie, IPA connoisseur, and commercial multi-engine instrument rated pilot, Dr. Staff. Hey, it's me. Glad to see you guys. Glad to be back. I've actually been here the whole time, except uh, no one besides you guys knew that. I've just been sitting here watching you guys laughing and having a good time. And I've been stuck on a conference call, uh, which was not nearly as enjoyable. <laughs> um, yeah, lots of fun, but it's over. And uh, so now I'm here and ready Yay. to Excellent. We're, we're glad you're here. Well, we were just talking about the second item in the news folder, the uh, 727 that kind of rolled backwards and because it wasn't chalked and mm-hmm. uh, and uh, you'll have to listen Steph, because captain nick just uh, shared I, I a just, wonderful story i listened story. to most of his story okay. so right before i i inserted myself back on the uh, uh okay i, good, good. I was just bit. vamping uh Steph. Uh-huh. <laughs> he just made all that up he really didn't do anything wrong uh-huh <laughs> no no i really didn't have to stand up in front of the whole squadron and admit myself with a mea culpa mea culpa <laughs> yeah uh, i've only had to do day. that once or twice in a safety meeting yeah. <laughs> yes <laughs> one of one of them it was actually the guy that i was flying with the other instructor pilot that screwed up but he was on leave when oh, we what? had ours. Yeah, how so I had to go convenient. up there. Yeah, how yeah, convenient. Very, very convenient. Very yeah, convenient. those traders are a tricky bunch. Steve, uh, can't think. Steve Norris. Name? <laughs> Steve, if you're watching or anybody watching and knows Steve Norris, tell him he still owes me for that one. Okay. Beer. Um, definitely yeah, beer. definitely a beer. I'd like a, yeah, a lot of beer. All right. That's a keg. At least. <laughs> hey, uh, this was an interesting one as well. And again, I didn't set this. I thought I was all ready to do this thing and I didn't set it up. But uh, I'll tell you what, uh, we don't, we'll just uh, kind of recreate it, uh, making our own um, sound effects. Um, <laughs> not yet, not yet. Oh, okay. Um, item C RJ engine run up flips hanger at KSBP, which is San Luis Obispo in uh, Central California. Okay, now. There's a there's a RJ, <laughs> a very sick RJ. <laughs> Wee! 
doing there we go engine run up and uh so this guy's taking this uh cell phone video and you know she sees the jet over there and then he kind of pans over to see where all this jet blast is going and there are a couple of airplanes there that i was kind of worried about those general that aviation was, airplanes you see that yeah, I, know. I thought they were going to blow. I thought so, to too. Truthful. But then he panned a little bit more to the left, and there's a hangar quite a ways away, actually. Uh, and the hangar starts moving, and then the whole darn, I don't know if this is the back or the front, I can't really tell, of the hangar just gets lifted up and just flips the whole darn thing over. I hope nobody got hurt in Whoops. that. Yeah. Uh, apparently, um, according to Ryan Spellman at Just Jetting Through, he says a of a Facebook or a yeah a Facebook grab yes. of a SkyWest CRJ doing high power engine runs in SBP apparently yesterday they sent an entire hangar flying I guess the little piggies need to make a home of brick this next time <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> not the strongest right. hangar ever constructed then apparently not I mean they didn't yeah. they probably figured that there was never going to be any kind of wind strong enough to blow the thing so that blow the thing over so they never actually secured it to the concrete I guess I don't know I don't, so don't know. get strong winds or yeah. anything like that and I would think San they would, would at uh, San Luis Obispo but I don't know anyway we'll, we'll put the uh, link to that in the show notes so you can watch the uh, video it's quite uh, entertaining to say the least. But uh, again, we hope that nobody, I don't know how nobody could have gotten hurt in that. <laughs> I don't. Looks I mean, pretty. hopefully it was, I, I don't know, not a lot going on. Not a lot of people it, around. Yeah. It did flip a couple airplanes over though. I saw at least one of those Cessnas that was flipped over looked like it seen better days. I don't think it was oh. a flying one. Like it wasn't, uh, you know, uh, oh, inside the hangar? Active, no, no, not just outside it. Just okay. outside it. One of the ones there that was, was tied down in front, or just okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. But it was it was flipped upside. Uh, I saw yeah. two of them flip flipped upside down. But uh, oh, yeah. Maybe I didn't watch enough of the thing. It's Should, not in that video clip. I think it was. Oh, in another somewhere. clip. Oh, yeah, okay. I think so. Yeah. Clip, yeah. Okay. Interesting. Wow. Hmm. All right. I guess um, SkyWest does a lot of their. Um, does SkyWest uh, do flying for American? Uh, yes, they do. Okay. Cause when they, they, when it said do. sky West I'm, and I saw it was an American airlines colors and I thought, well, is that really sky West? But anyway, I guess that's kind of a big place for them to do a lot of maintenance work, um, over there on the West coast. Anyway, um, item D, uh, okay. So, uh, I have a couple of stories. The last two here in the news folder are from the, uh, aviation safety, uh, dot net website. And, uh, the first one, um, and I, I woke up uh, to this uh, a few days back, and they had said that there was a, a big cr- an aircraft crash at Manila in the Philippines, and uh, and at, they said Lion Air, and I'm thinking, oh, Lion Air, that's the Indonesian carrier that flies 737s, I think exclusively, and I think, oh my gosh, what what happened this time? Um, but it turns out that this uh, operator of a um, commercial, I mean, a, a business jet. Uh, a Westwind two uh, made by Israeli aircraft industries uh, is their The name of their company is lion air, all one word, not like lion space air, the airline. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but still a sad story. They were um, flying medical um, supplies and uh, some personnel from Manila to, I think they're heading up to Tokyo and uh, they, uh, didn't make it off the runway. It was a takeoff accident and uh, everybody aboard, two crew and um, six passengers for a total of eight fatalities 
um, mm-hmm. on the takeoff. I'm not really sure. You know, at the time I g- grabbed this information from the aviationsafety.net, uh, they had no idea what had happened here. They just that this event occurred and uh, burst into flames and everybody was killed. Do we have any more information about that? Anybody know? No, I didn't. I, I I looked it up as well, and then they haven't been too uh, forthcoming with information. But all, all I read is the same thing you did. And yeah. my, it's funny. Well, not funny, but it's it's interesting. My reaction was the exact same as yours. And I, I saw a lie in there, and I was like, oh, man. Yeah. thought it was a 737, now. you know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, all I managed to find, Jeff, was on uh, Flight Radar 24. And the only interesting bit there was the speed at which they may have uh, rejected because they've got a uh, a ground speed trace that gets up to nearly a hundred knots, so it doesn't even look like it was a uh, you know a really a true high speed abort. Of course, this trace is bound to have and some inaccuracies mm-hmm. uh, involved. But uh, it was if it was less than a hundred knots in my company, we wouldn't have called that a high speed abort. So, but mm-hmm. uh, um, uh, so you know, I, I suspect that whatever caused the fire was a major failure that uh, uh, you know ruptured tanks and uh, you know just caused a huge problem on board. Um, so I don't know, tra- tragic. But, you, you know, know. This, this reminds me of it's and and uh, it's. So does the maker of this particular airframe are are they related to Gulfstream whatsoever? I believe. Uh, I think they I used. I have no idea. It used to be a Rockwell Commander. Um, I think um, that made the airplane before Israeli aircraft industries oh, bought probably, the okay, thing. Okay. I believe it could me, be wrong, but this reminds me a lot of that. Uh, remember, it was a it was a few years ago actually. It was uh, some kind of Gulfstream business jet that was going down the runway, and they had forgotten to uh, to, uh, to take the uh, flight controls oh, uh, yeah. locks mm-hmm. off. Mm-hmm. And they uh, they realized you know, very far and you know, very late into the takeoff rolling, and then they never did get off the ground. So uh, I don't I mean, I'm not saying this is what happened here, but I'd be I'd be, I'd be interested in seeing. But yeah. I haven't been able to find anything anyway, so it's kind of kind of hard to say. And that's the problem, you know, with these uh, like the small business jet kind of accidents. Mm-hmm. A lot of times, it's hard to find any information about it at all. So uh, hopefully, uh, using our new um, aviation, um, what is it called, A- aviation accidents um, app. Uh, we can find out some information about that when, at least when they have a preliminary report. If I don't know, wait, maybe the U.S. will won't even be a, the uh, NTSB won't even be a part of it or the FAA because mm, it's a Israeli not. corporation and it happened in the Philippines. So we, you know, we might have to rely yeah. on unless somebody else's there was report. an American on board. You right. probably won't know. Uh, I noticed it was a pretty old airplane, 1981, so uh, 19 plus another 20, 39 years old. That uh, doesn't mean much really except that, you know, old airplanes out in the Far East, you don't necessarily expect them to be as uh, reliable perhaps as modern aircraft. They've probably been well worked. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Could be a factor for sure. Yeah. And, you know, the, uh, you know, how witnesses are, uh, if they said it, you know, it was a big explosion. Well, was that before they rejected the takeoff or during the rejection or after it went off the end of the runway or something? Yeah. something yeah it could knows. have broken up uh, having left the runway for some reason and yeah. Yeah. it might have caused the fire. Yeah. Well, hopefully we'll find out more information about this and we'll report on it in a future episode. Tragic that, of course, it was doing a humanitarian flight carrying uh, COVID-19 medical supplies. So, you know, double tragedy. Yes, Mm -hmm. for sure. You know, know, what kind of effect is that going to have on so many people, right? Mm. Um, 
All right. And then the last one in the news folder, also from aviationsafety.net. This uh, accident uh, was a Canadair um, Challenger uh, 600-2B16. And uh, it was, let's see, uh, I'll probably mangle all of this. Uh, A Turkish Challenger 604 corporate jet impacted a mountain near Shar-e-Kurd in Iran, killing all 11 on board. The aircraft departed Sharjah, or Sharjah. Sharjah, yep. Oh, did I? Wow, I was pretty darn close. Thank you. Right the first time, yeah. Yeah, uh, UAE, United Arab Emirates, at 1311 UTC on a flight to Istanbul, Turkey. The aircraft entered Tehran, FIR. Let's see, 15 minutes later, and the Tehran air traffic controller cleared the flight to climb to flight level 360, according to its flight plan. About 1432, the pilot requested flight level 380, which was approved. Before reaching that altitude, the left and right airspeeds began to diverge by more than 10 knots. Another unreliable airspeed incident, it appears. The left captain's, the, the captain's airspeed indicator showed an increase, while the right hand or co-pilot's airspeed indicator showed a decrease. A caution oral alert notified notify the flight crew of the difference. Remarks by the flight crew suggested that an EFIS Comp Mon, or uh, the uh, Electric Flight Information System, um, is that what Ele- EFIS, or, Electronic Flight Instrument System Compensation Monitoring. Monitor. Caution message appeared on the ICAST, so that that's what you'd expect because it's sensing a difference between the sides. As the aircraft was climbing, the crew reduced thrust to idle. Okay, let me read that again. As the aircraft was climbing, mind you, how high are they? They're getting up 30, between 36 38. and 38. Yeah. Uh, the crew reduced the thrust to idle. Jeez, Approximately 63 seconds. Why did they do that? I sir? don't know. <laughs> Approximately 63 seconds later, a little bit more than a minute, while approaching flight level 380, the overspeed oral warning mm-hmm. clacker began to sound. Okay, now, you know, use your head. You pull the power back to idle. You're very high. Um, the overspeed clacker is going off. Um, that doesn't sound right. Uh, indicating that the indicated Mach had exceeded 0.85. Based on the quick reference handbook of the aircraft, the QRH, the pilot flying should validate the IAS, the indicated airspeed, based on the aircraft flight manual and define the reliable air data computer and select the re- reliable air data source. The pilot did not follow this procedure, directly reduced engine power to decrease the indicated airspeed after hearing the clacker. I thought they'd already <laughs> reduced it to idle, uh, but maybe they, at some point they had pushed the power back up. I don't know. The actual airspeed thus reached a stall condition. The co-pilot tried to begin reading of the EFIS comp mon abnormal procedure for three times, but due to pilot interruption, she could not complete it. Due to decreasing speed, the stall warning... Uh, began to sound in addition to stick shaker, stick pusher activating repeatedly. The crew then should have referred to another emergency procedure to recover from the stall condition. While the stick pusher acted to pitch down the aircraft to prevent a stall condition, the captain was mistakenly assumed uh, the captain mistakenly assumed an overspeed situation due to the previous erroneous overspeed warning and pulled on the control column. Hey. Hmm. The aircraft entered a series of pitch and roll oscillations. Yeah, no kidding. The autopilot was disengaged by the crew before, so all this time, 
uh, for a lot of this, the autopilot was still engaged. And then they finally disengaged the uh, autopilot before the stall warning, which ended the oscillations. Engine power began to decrease on both sides until both engines flamed out in the stall condition. Um, let's see. From that point, flight data recorder data was lost because the electric bus did not continue to receive power from the engine generators. The cockpit voice recorder recording continued for a further approximately 1 minute and 20 seconds on emergency battery power. Stall warnings, stick shaker, and stick pusher activations continued until the end of the recording. The aircraft then impacted mountainous terrain. Let's see. Unstable weather conditions were present along the flight route over Iran, which included moderate up to severe turbulence and icing conditions up to 45,000 feet. These conditions could have caused ice crystals to block the left-hand pitot tube. It was also reported that the aircraft was parked at Sharjah Airport for three days in dusty weather conditions. Hmm. Initially, the pitot covers had not been applied. The formation of dust inside the pitot tube was considered another possibility. Okay, so here we have a situation where you're, you have an unreliable airspeed or a difference in airspeeds, and... I don't know. The, it seems that the captain just jumped to the conclusion that his airspeed was correct or the one that was indicating they were going too fast. I think that was his side, right? Going mm -hmm. too fast to get the overspeed warning and everything else. But, you know, he was just reacting to the situation and not like thinking, like step, taking a step back and thinking, well, does this make any sense? I'm way up high. I'm climbing. I'm pulling back my power to idle and, the, and we're still overspeeding. Uh, that should have told him <laughs> that oh, maybe it's my airspeed system, uh, airspeed indicator and air data computer system is messed up. Let's use the first officers and, you know, keep flying the airplane. Exactly. The before you get in. to that, Ryan, before you get to that point, really, you need to establish a baseline. And what, so that's why, you know, when us pilots, when we're cruising along, uh, should uh, pay attention to what, normal flight looks like as far as power and pitch because at the end of the day if you lose everything that's really all you have and these things are um you know just they all they all cruise the same about two and a half degrees nose up and with the thrust levers you know basically standing up if you're flying mm -hmm. at boat and, and the climb detent if it's an airbus um but the 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 amount of power and pitch is it's usually the same about two and a half nose up as i said and about you know 75 to 85 percent n1 so that that'll that right there will keep you safe until you're able to pull the uh, the appropriate uh, checklist down and then uh, um a lot of these a lot of these um these checklists for different airlines so different operators have different type of checklists but they're all based on the same you know route checklist that was um, certified by whoever the agency was the first three steps are uh, disconnect the autopilot disengage the auto throttle turn your flight directors to off because you can't yeah, you, you got to have manual control of the pitch, manual control of the thrust, and then you have to keep in mind that whatever inputs are being sent to your flight director system could be from the system that's been compromised. So you you want to you want to look now not only look through your flight director to maintain that pitch, but turn it off so it's not a nuisance, right? And then from that point on, go into your uh, non-normal procedure and establish what your um, your uh, failed uh, system is. Try to isolate that. And uh, another another uh, source of uh, of uh, speed information that you have there is is your inertial speed because all you know modern airplanes have inertial uh, systems that provide 
your your attitude, your your rate of climb, rate of descent, your uh, your your direction of flight, you know, uh, north, south, east, east, west, that kind of stuff. And now uh, one one of the one of the outputs is is inertial ground speed. That'll give you what your ground speed is or the speed over the ground. So also compare what your cruise speed is under normal conditions with that ground speed. And that also gives you another, you know, another idea of where you should be and whether that pitch and power combo that you have going at that, at that time, if this, if this problem shows up is the correct one. So all these really, all this really does is buys you time to reference what's called the, um, non-normal configuration, um, uh, flight chapter in the QRH there, and then and, and it goes into different weights, different altitudes, and it gives you kind of fine tunes what that pitch and power combination should be to get you uh, back on the ground. You know, the first step they just violated. You know, aviate, mm-hmm. fly mm-hmm. the airplane, and you know, pull it exactly. out checklists and all that kind of stuff. You know, not the time for for that. Let's get the aircraft under control and, and keep it from get flying it. or falling out of the sky. Get it stabilized. Absolutely. Yeah. Wow. And, you know, a lot of people in the chat room are you know, like shaking their virtual heads as well, thinking, and, and I'm sure you all did the same when you were reading this narrative, thinking, what, what, <laughs> what did they do? Well, yeah, as, as Pip said, uh, after the last five years, in fact, before that, right. when uh, Air France went down, uh, we've had this at the forefront of our minds. And, uh, you know, we've said it over and over and over again. I don't know what the industry has to do to educate pilots. But uh, this is such now uh, a well-known problem and such a basic error that I think we're all a bit exasperated. Yeah, we are. Mm. For sure. But I, but I tell you, I mean, you're flying around and you and you have both overspeed and stall warnings at the same time. And it's just it's, it's overwhelming. And I tell you, because it, it's in, in, in a training environment, when you have this happen to you, I can't tell you how many times I've forgotten to, to, to switch the master warning off to just to reset that. And, and the whaler is going off and you kind of tune it out because you're mm-hmm. so focused on getting this thing stable that uh, you, you just you just tunnel vision yourself into the situation here. But, you know, it takes it, it behooves you to kind of you know, take, take a step back here. And as, as Jeff said, you know, aviate, 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 always aviate. First. Fly the airplane. We say check your pulse first. There you mm-hmm. go. Or wind your clock or. Yeah. Do, do something that just gives you a second just so you can, you know, like Rick was saying, you want to just take a step back from that situation because that might give you that moment of clarity to say, oh, I'm focusing on just one small thing here. That's not the right thing to focus on. I mean, at Acme a couple of years ago, uh, Dana, you may remember this. There was a the kind of airplane that we fly was climbing out and the same sort of thing happened. The airspeed just kept increasing. And so they kept, you know, raising up the nose of the aircraft and pulling the power back and airspeed kept increasing. It was the airspeed indicator was acting like an altimeter. You know, the basics, we learned this is like, but sometimes it's hard to kind of realize what's happening. I guess when it's happening, it's never happened to me, thankfully, but you know, you have to, you have to say to yourself at some point, wait a minute, I can't keep raising the nose and pulling the power back you know, uh, forever, because eventually this thing's going to stall, you know, at Um, some point from a common sense standpoint, it should not, it should definitely get your attention. Yeah. You just say, this is not right. This can't be this indication or this warning cannot be right. (sighs) Okay. Well, I mean, the, the point here though, kind of, uh, in summary guys goes right back to number two with a seven, two, seven rolling backwards and everybody's story. Okay. Uh, you know, the guy, Almost had the airplane roll off the side of the hill because the 
you know, hydraulic pressure bleed down. He went into the heat of battle and he sat the APU or, you know, didn't think about pulling pneumatic uh, a hand pump. And uh, then you, Jeff, had a fire extinguisher in the back of your car, but yet you went, went through all these steps. So the point being there is that when you're in the heat of battle, sometimes you miss things or forget things. And uh, certainly, you know, we go into training just like, uh, you know, Rick said, and, you know, you put those, you know, based on your configuration, 2.5 degrees up, you get to 75% uh, in the power and, and just let the airplane settle down. Then you get into the checklist, right? In the heat of battle, you know, this is a corporate pilot, and I'm not putting down corporate pilots, but they don't have the same stringent training that we have at the airlines. They have the regulations, Right. And they have to go abide by the regulations. But, you know, they don't have their own training departments. They go to training contractors. And I've heard this numerous times from friends that have, you know, that go through that type of training. It is different. Um, You know, and it's up to the individual to be able to recognize and be able to react to it. And and sometimes we just become frozen with what we're seeing and and what our brain is comprehending and calculating at that point. Hmm. Absolutely. Oh, Pip, it's uh, Dana at airlinepilotguy.com. <laughs> I was waiting for Pip to, to say something in the chat room. He must have stepped away. I'm looking for it. And I'm, and I'm, and I'm, and I'm you know, because I flew, I flew corporate. I, I know I know what's involved there. And I'm not saying corporate pilots are, are, are bad pilots. I'm not saying that at all. I just think that the level of training. Uh, I think know, it depends on the corporate flight yeah, department too doesn't company. it yeah. well yeah if you have a flight department that has you know specific standards certainly mm-hmm. uh, i you know i don't i didn't read that this is a corporate flight department airplane it might have been a one-off i don't know uh you know you know if you get into you know 135 charter there, there are different you know there are different uh, regulations in in certifications versus a 91 operator right mm-hmm. so if this is a privately owned airplane i, I, I didn't read into that um, this happened over in Iran, so and it was a Turkish yeah. crew, so I don't know what their uh, standards right. are over it, there. It, exactly, and, and they may have come over to flight safety or or to uh, I forget the other one uh, right right now. Uh, Rick, you probably remember. You know, all this mm-hmm. the CAE. There's there's different there's different companies that do these type of of uh, contract training uh, for the individual pilots, and you know we don't know who the pilots were. We don't know if they were contract pilots or if they, how familiar. You know, we, we see their hours, and then I, I see that, um, well, at least the airframe hours. I don't see the pilot information. But, you know, we don't know that. So that's the one little thing that I'm putting in there, that if you compare a corporate a flying environment. Now, if you go out there and you say, okay, Coca-Cola, and I'm just throwing that out there because I just happen to know they have a huge, uh, very standardized uh, flying department. They're trained to a certain level and, and very much like the airlines are operated. And that's all I'm saying. But I'll say and reiterate that uh, regardless of the training you receive, I mean, you should. we should all go back to our very first training when we were first starting to fly an airplane, flying in that 172 or that Piper or whatever it is, and remember how uh, the, the basics, the fundamentals, like, you know, you can't be in any kind of airplane and raise the nose and pull the power back and expect that you're not going to eventually stall the airplane. Right. Or yep. maybe I'm I'll wrong. get into that in, in just a minute. Cause I just did some of that stuff. So. Okay. Excellent. Well, good discussion. Thank you everybody for that. And with that, I think it's now time to, 
get to know us. And let's see. Since, Steph, you were mentioning, hey, I'll get to that in a moment, talking about stalls and such. Uh, What are you talking about? So I'm talking about doing a biennial flight review. Talk about getting into small uh, aircraft and get out there and do some flying. And I got that taken care of. So, um, yeah, just within the past week or so. Um, about just over an hour of flying, an hour of some ground school stuff just to review. Yep, it's good to review the basics. And a lot of it focuses on this type of safety stuff as well. Um, maintaining situational awareness and then getting out there and practicing those things that are so important. So, you know, you get out there, you do stalls, you do different um, types of takeoffs, landings, approaches, um, you know, just basic air work. So, um, yeah, it's, it's not any different in a small aircraft than it is once you get into a larger jet when it comes to the basics. So, but anyway, it was good to get out there and, and get flying. I know um, someone actually just asked me not too long ago, what are you even doing? Have you been flying at all? <laughs> you, uh, like, Somebody sent some no. feedback regarding that. Oh, we yeah. haven't heard you flying. That's noticeable, huh? Um, <laughs> yeah. So yeah, last year was, uh, I actually started off the year doing a ton of flying up until about June and then just other life stuff got in the way. There was a lot of travel. There was a lot of uh, other outside interests, a lot of running stuff going on, and then some some family illnesses. So that kind of took away my other free time that I would otherwise use for, for flying. But a lot of that has settled down and certainly I'm not taking any trips anywhere else <laughs> right now. So Why not? Well, yeah. <laughs> no, we're not even going to get into that, are we? Hey, Doc, Steph, we need you back. Yeah. Single-handedly support the airlines, please. It's single-handedly? <laughs> yeah, yeah, she did provide a lot of revenue. <laughs> she does. We well, you know back. what? It was such a – I finally just the other day went through and cleared out everything I had because I had a bunch of trips scheduled for this month. I was supposed to be in uh, Boston in two weeks. I was supposed to be running a 5K there before the Boston Marathon. Fly down to New York, fly out to the UK, fly back. I, there, I had all kinds of stuff scheduled, and it's – no longer on my itinerary. So Mm. that's depressing. But, um, you know, uh, I know this has actually been talked about a whole lot in terms of, um, especially over in Europe and the UK and stuff about people getting out there and doing general aviation flying and kind of being um, frowned upon because, gosh, what if something happens? You're taking away from um, services that might be needed elsewhere, limited resources. So far, um, at least where I am, that has not necessarily been the case. Um, certainly, I'm not looking to do anything that's going to put anyone else in harm's way or or do anything where I'm going to be compromising my social distancing. But um, hopefully, and especially as things start to, if we get on the other side of this anytime soon. Now I'm current again, I got some time to to get out there and, and do some more flying. So we'll see. It's, it's up in the air, no pun intended, like everything else at the moment, but good to be current again. Hmm. Excellent. Welcome Absolutely. back to currency. Thank you. <laughs> um, so I know we haven't been doing a heck of a lot, uh, any of us, because of this coronavirus thing. Um, how, how's everything at work? Is still everything stabilized? or? Yeah, actually. So, you know, I missed the first 30, 45 minutes of the show on a work call. Um, actually, I'm going to get to Ray Davis's question here real quick. He said, Steph, can you remember how to fly? <laughs> you know, you go like seven months without flying and you start to wonder that yourself. But um, those first three landings I did were beautiful. I'm just going to toot my own horn there. Oh, yeah. the back. They were fantastic. Yeah, they'll go downhill from here, though, so, for sure. <laughs> oh, yeah. I was like, that's <laughs> the instructor I was flying with to do my VFR. He goes, I might need you to teach me how to, to do that. And I said, give it some time. They'll get worse again. Don't worry. It's just, you know, um, 
but no, they were, they were all good. So yeah, don't think um, in terms of just hand flying skills, certainly that's a perishable skill. So you want to make sure you're out there and doing it a whole lot. And I'm not saying that, you know, an a, a hour and change of hand flying and, and completing a BFR is um, sufficient. So hopefully, you know, just depending on current situation, I'll get out there some more at least soon. So maintain those skills. Anyway, um, work stuff has been, has settled down some, um, there was a whole bunch of upheaval in how we're doing our scheduling. So a lot of our visits are now on video, um, and telephone, uh, which are, they come with their own set of frustration and challenges. Cause a lot of what I do, um, for work and in medicine is reliant upon physical examination. Um, a lot of it is hands-on type stuff, um, testing muscle strength and reflexes and sensation and neurologic function. And that's very difficult to do. It's, it's difficult to do over video. Um, it's a little bit easier than over the telephone. Cause at least you can have people demonstrate some things for you. So you at least get a good sense of kind of global fun functioning over telephone. It's nearly impossible. So I'm trying to really encourage all my patients to get with the times and get a, you know, internet connection or find an internet connection and get connected to our electronic medical records, which allows you to connect and interface with zoom. Um, so we can, can do those things, but you know, we're certainly, uh, recognize that not everyone has those capabilities even these days. And a lot of my patients are quite a bit older and it's, it's challenging and daunting for them to do that. So we're, we're just trying to make it work as best we can. Um, still able to get in and do some of our procedures and injections because our thought is that if we can manage those and keep uh, just basically one person at a time in the office and then back out, um, hopefully we're uh, keeping those folks comfortable and preventing them from using hospital resources to manage their pain. So, um, Still working, still pretty busy. Nothing has changed a whole lot for me there. Um, it's a little bit less time in the office, so I'm a little bit uh, at home a little bit more, but still working. Well, I, I know a couple of dogs that probably appreciate you you being here all the time. <laughs> they're a big distraction when I'm trying to work because <laughs> even if they're not in the, so I do all of that in my office here as well. I've got a separate setup over here because my um, uh, electronic medical record does not play nicely with Apple devices. So I've got my Windows service tablet over here. Um, but even when they're outside the door or downstairs and they're barking at the deer or something, you can hear that on the on the call. So then you have to explain, yeah, I'm actually I'm working from home as well. Ambiance. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But everyone's been very understanding. So um it's it's going reasonably well. Good. Good to hear it. Um Rick, uh you are uh we did a, a special uh, crew log, Rick and I. Uh, together talking about kind of in-depth what uh, he has been going through since the very first part of February and the fact that you uh, uh, reached a milestone last weekend and you are, uh, you passed your, uh, yes, we should play the applause. Here it is. Yay. Better late than never. The applause Yay, I'm talking about. Congratulations. <laughs> wow. Is rating right. So, and we talked about this on the, uh, on the crew log that, uh, this is, uh, and we, I uh, entitled the uh, crew log hat trick because, uh, this is your third, um, type rating on the 767. Not a lot of people can say that. Yeah. Third, not third try, third no, type no. rating. <laughs> yes. Third separate. Third pass. Yes. I mean, exactly. the, the first one was the Chilean, right? Right. And so then, I got, uh, yeah, I, I'm typed on the 76 on the Chilean license, then again on my Ecuadorian license, and then uh, on my American license, all, all, all PAC uh, types. So, um, nice. yeah, third third time around. Yeah, I can't, uh, not a lot of people can say that. But uh, yeah, yeah it, it was a, it was a, it was a good check, right? Uh, uh, 
very these these check cards are are, are very straightforward. Uh, and uh, and the day before, two days before, you go through a pre check, and the and the uh, the footprint of the check right is is basically exactly the same. Obviously, you don't know what kind of what kind of um, divert scenario or return to departure airport scenario you're going to get uh, because part of this check right obviously is is uh, assessing your your uh, decision making skills and how you would react to a situation out on the line so that's something else that they need to they need to evaluate you on but uh, but yeah it was it was good nice uh, hour 20 you know our our 20 minute long check ride uh, we had uh, about an hour and a half uh, brief and then the debrief took about another half hour and then 45 minutes after that trying to get the damn 8710 printed out because the uh, printer was acting up so uh, so uh, but it, it went fine it went fine and I'm happy to be uh, on this side of the uh, on this side of the bridge now and so the uh, you're almost through the entire training process correct you should be finished pretty soon Right. So we started uh, early February, as Jeff said, uh, I think it was the third. And uh, it's been nonstop till now. So we're looking at uh, uh, tomorrow early and Saturday early, two days of classroom work. Um, because going from flying out, and I was, I was telling you guys earlier uh, before we started recording here, uh, going from flying a four-engine airplane to a two-engine airplane, there's certain considerations especially when, you, when you're talking about um, doing a lot of the oceanic flying. Um, because you can't, uh, you know, on the seven four. If I lost an engine, I still had three. Uh, on the seven six, I lose one engine. I'm down to one. So there's 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 performance um, considerations, operational considerations, things that you have to keep in mind when operating in that kind of scenario. So uh, these two days um, of what's called um, line qualification training (LQT) uh, focuses primarily on that kind of stuff. And then, uh, at the other, uh, at the other end of that, you do a one last simulator, uh, session in which you go, um, and apply all of these concepts to a normal, you know, uh, as normal as you can make it line flight in the sim. Um, so you'll, uh, you'll have a scenario where you'll go from very probably will be, you know, um, thinking Baltimore to Frankfurt, which is what we do a lot in that seven, six there, North Atlantic wise. And we'll have some kind of uh, engine issue that'll have us obviously return back down to, uh, your near suitable airport. Um, and how to handle that, how to do the, so when, when you're flying along the North Atlantic there, there's a track system that you, it's kind of like a highway, a motorway that you, that you fly across there. And, uh, and you fly in these tracks, parallel tracks separated, uh, usually at, uh, at a degree of latitude or 60, uh, 60 nautical miles. And so if you have an engine issue and you need to return to your, to, to your near suitable airport, which is, you know, might at that point be still behind you. Uh, you can't just, you know, do a U-turn and uh, fly whichever way you want at whatever altitude you want. There's a, there's a certain procedure and contingencies to follow, and so that's that's kind of what we're going to have to, you know, demonstrate on on uh, Monday, based on these last two days of class uh, that we have scheduled. So looking forward to that, and then after that, uh, completely done. So looking looking forward to a couple of days off. And then I actually have to get back uh, back to flying rather quickly here because I need to make sure that I uh, consolidate 100 hours in the airplane uh, before 120 days is out. Because otherwise, I'm going to have to go back and do another um, check ride in the in, in the box. Yeah, I know. So, uh, 
I'm, I'm hoping to take, you know, two weeks off and then just go, go right back out to flying. The good thing is that the good thing is that there's uh there's a lot of flying going around, um, for, for, for the freighter. So that, that, that shouldn't be an issue, hopefully. Well, I'll have you know that uh, not only is Miami Rick on the show, but Miami Hick is in the chat room. <laughs> he, oh, said, he said he doesn't really like briefs. He's more of a boxer man himself. <laughs> so thank you for sharing that, uh, Miami exactly Hick. Right. <laughs> All right. Uh, let's see. So I'll take you off of the focus and... Let's focus on this gentleman, uh, upper right-hand corner, wearing the um, airline pilot guy Acme Air uh, cap. Uh, Captain Nick, are you? Uh, it seems like you're doing a little bit better than the last couple of episodes, as far as as your cough and such is concerned. Well, I'm still he- still here, sir. You're not uh, dead. Yet. I wish I could shake this cough completely, but uh, uh, sadly, it seems not. Uh, so you know, nothing much has changed. Uh, uh, we're still being very strictly isolated uh, here in the United Kingdom. Um, so really my only connection with the outside world is uh, a weekly visit to, to a supermarket to try and uh, stock up uh, on a few items. And actually now we're getting stuff delivered, so I'm probably not even going to have to leave the house for that. And our local pub has very nicely started uh, delivering food as well, nice. So, uh, which is absolutely fantastic. You know, the pub Just in food? the UK is, yeah, it's fresh food, fresh veg. Uh, they will beverages. Yeah, uh, yes, they will. They'll <laughs> provide flagons of red mist, uh, bitter, uh, something I'm not actually short of. I've got plenty of booze, actually. <laughs> because I'm still taking antibiotics for uh, 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 another infection I'd rather not talk about, if you don't mind. Mm. Um, I'm only joking. <laughs> uh, I can't actually drink at the moment. So... Uh, um, anyway, by the way, um, but, but quick, moving on quickly. Uh, <laughs> yes. Yeah, um, we, we're all just sitting here watching the numbers basically around the world, which is a pretty depressing thing to do because in most countries it's getting worse, and we know it's going to get worse before it gets better. But uh, uh, even so, it's it's not making good reading. And uh, uh, while you're waiting here for things to happen, and in the meantime, I'm catching up with a lot of friends who uh, are in, still working uh, in my old airline who are saying things are not good, uh, and uh, everyone's very worried about the future. So um, that's really a dreadful situation to be in. At least I'm out of it now. That's good for pardon me for me, and I feel uh, very sorry for people who are still in the industry and trying to make or trying to work out what's going to happen in the future. It's oh, it's yeah. a tough uh, life for everyone right now. A lot of people um, listening to this show right now are are laid off or furloughed or. You know, Absolutely. Uh, we really, it uh, must be about really you. tough to keep a positive outlook uh, yes. while you're watching the world crumble around you. But we all know that this will peak and then it will start to recede. And uh, as people gain immunity, more and more of us will be allowed back to work. And as soon as that happens, uh, the industry will start to pick back up again. Uh, it's just that when there's nothing to do, except count the days, it seems to take forever. It's like a bit of time distortion. So all I can do is that you say, stay close to your friends, uh, and stay close to people who are 
positive in their outlook because uh, there's nothing worse than uh, uh, having a worry and then having your mental situation spiral downwards because you're only seeing the negative side uh, of things. Uh, there is a positive side, and the positive side will come when we uh, have uh, got over the worst of this. So stay uh, safe, stay well. Uh, stay mentally strong, everybody, and uh, you'll get over it, uh, as I am slowly getting over uh, this cough myself. Very good. Dana, uh, let's see. I, you said you're just getting back from a trip, so you've been out there uh, flying the line. Um, lots of passengers, I'm sure. Tons of passengers, lots of passengers out there. As a matter of fact, I'm wearing a T-shirt right now, and I'm wearing this T-shirt on purpose because it brings back some uh, – some memories of how a uh, community can shut the entire place down and then and shelter in place and then then thrive afterwards and just want to have that same type of thought because I'm with Nick. It's 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 really depressing. I, I, I shared with the crew a picture of the uh, airport uh, I took yesterday, yesterday, day before yesterday, where I'm looking down the concourse. I can see the end of the concourse, and the only people I see are, are – customer service agents. Um, so, yeah, we haven't. I actually had a really good load coming out of Daytona uh, Beach this morning. I had a total of 38 people on the airplane. Oh, that is. That's pretty good, actually. Um, <laughs> yeah, it is pretty good because, I, I mean, I'm flying around. I, the other day, I think I had nine revenue passengers. Mm-hmm. And I thought to myself, on my pontoon boat, I can have every one of us on the pontoon still have room left over. Yet I'm flying a 149-seat airplane around, or 160, depending on which model I'm on. So uh, it's been uh, it's been pretty disheartening as to uh, what's going on out there. Everybody is is obviously uh, afraid of of uh, air travel because uh, you know you're locked up in a tube uh, in close proximity, and even I found myself uh, very reactive um, on my overnight because the van that uh, the hotel was using is a minivan. It's a like a Toyota Sienna. You know, it's just one of those very small vans that you, um, you know, the last row is really designed for kids and not really for grown adults. And found out we had a deadhead person coming with us in the morning uh, that made the six people uh, on the crew and then the one driver. It's an eight-person van, not comfortable, and we're elbow to elbow at that point. So that is not social distancing no. And keeping, keeping, uh, you know, not breathing on each other. So uh, we tried to obtain an Uber. We tried to obtain a taxi, uh, unable to uh, obtain any of that. So mm-hmm. that was uh, a bit disconcerting, uh, even though the company, you know, and I talked to the company and they authorized the taxi, couldn't get a taxi to the uh, hotel for 430 in the morning. Oh, yeah, um, tough. Oh, before you go on, uh, you, you mentioned your shirt, but uh, a lot of the people, most of the people listening to the show right now are not watching the video. What does your shirt say? It says Boston Strong. Uh-huh. And it, that's it. it <clears throat> right now, I'd like to take a marker and cross right across it and either put one or two sayings in there. Uh, airline Strong. So thinking about all of our airline people throughout the entire world, aviation folks that, you know, we need to stay positive um, because it's really, it's really difficult to do so when you see the airplane so empty. Uh, and the other one is um, um, world strong. So everybody in the world needs to stay strong and together and get through this as, as, as a, a human race um, because it, it's uh, – Affecting a, a percentage, and uh, we're just trying to protect all of us from from it 
it's spreading. You know, I have some other concerns about what's going on, and I'm just not going to talk about those on the show. But um, I'm just, I'm, I just want everybody to stay strong out there, including myself, because I'm facing, I'm facing ultimate, uh, ultimate uh, de- demise on, on probably in my captainhood as a direct result of this. That nothing official yet, but uh, the way things are looking, uh, it's, it's certainly not looking great. Uh, considering in Atlanta, I only have uh, 96 people below me in total that are captains in Atlanta. And uh, system-wide, taking out New York City, because I'm not commuting to New York. I've always said that I'm not commuting. Um, I have about 200 in the entire system. So not looking overly good for me. Yeah, but you do have a job, though. You know, I, so. That's exactly where I was going <laughs> to go with that. You're way ahead of most of the people out there. I am way ahead of most of the people. And, you know, and I am fortunate that, you know, I <clears throat> hopefully will have a job if we get to me in, in furlough, uh, which there's nothing been officially mentioned at all. I'm just speculating um, that, uh, you know, everybody's really in big trouble because you'd have to get through almost 6,000 people to get to me. Uh, anyways, uh, talking about the flying stuff, because that's what I was out there doing. I had a three-day trip that was broken up. I had uh, a two-day initially and uh, then a day line because the overnight was canceled. And uh, the uh, couple of interesting things that happened to me, we kind of were talking about it with the 727. So the um, <clears throat> sitting, I took the uh, airplane out of Panama City Beach in the morning and flew it up to Atlanta. And then we were going up to Rochester with the same aircraft. Now, you know that MEL, that really nasty icing valve, MEL? Mm-hmm. That, uh, that's what I had to deal with on that airplane. It's a pain in the butt based on the temperature. If it's 10 degrees and below, it's not a big deal. If it's 10 degrees and above, even in, in climbing cruise, you have to figure out EPRs um, and then um, subtract 0.04 from it and Got to monitor it. You don't have orthodox. You don't have VNAV as a result. It, it's 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 a it's a it's a nasty one. But to add that, I, you know, we we brought it up to uh, up to Atlanta. Not a big deal. Sitting in Atlanta, we kept the airplane, and I went out and grabbed a breakfast sandwich. Came back. I'm sitting there doing the pre-flight, and I look at the brake pressure gauge, which is always part of my my flow. And the left brake brake uh, the left brake pressure was at zero. So my first thought is, uh, okay, that's not particularly good um, because I just left the aircraft in hydraulic pressure. So normally it doesn't bleed down. It'll bleed down a little bit, you know, four or 500 PSI ish. Uh, that's fine. But 15, 20 minutes later, I come back and it's zero, uh, not normal. So I'm thinking, okay, probably a uh, brake accumulated pressure issue. So I call maintenance out and they can, you know, go through all their procedures, trying to figure out what was going on. And then I had one of the maintenance guys say, "Well, it's just, it's just the valve and the parking brake. It's, it's a, st- it's a stuck valve, and it's bleeding the system down." I said, "Okay, the parking brake. Can you, some way, somehow, prove that to me? Because when we're putting, the, the, and there's a procedure. If you uh, go ahead and, and put the hydraulics on." Pump. Then once you go ahead and uh, set the brakes and pump down, pump you pump down the brakes. You put the hydraulics on, and then you leave the turn the hydraulics back off. And you have to have within ten minutes, no more than a bleed down to eighteen hundred psi. The normal psi in the system is roughly right around three thousand psi, and it was within about six minutes bleeding down to less than eighteen hundred psi, which is not uh, not acceptable. 
So they're sitting there going around trying to figure out what's going on. I'm thinking they're going to give me a new airplane. They, they decide they want to try to fix this one. And so this mechanic comes up to me and says to me, you know, it's just the parking brake. I said, oh, okay, how do I know that? He says, because I'm telling you. I said, no. One of them flying along at 30,000 feet, and I look down, and I say, zero PSI. How do I know that? And so he's he's hemming and hollering, and I said, all right, this is what we're going to do. He says, well, most of the guys around here don't know the systems, blah, blah, blah. So I, I didn't get on my soapbox. He said it. And I said, uh, it, I'm not like most of the guys. He says, well, you guys tell me they've been on the airplane 20 years, and they don't know what they're talking about, really. I said, sir, I used to teach this airplane. I taught it for three years. I know this airplane better than most, and I've forgotten what more than most have ever known about it. I said, I understand the system fully. So this is what we're going to do. If indeed it is the actual parking brake valve that is stuck, that is causing the bleed down the system, if what you guys have been doing is you're leaving the parking brake set, turn off the hydraulics, parking brake bleeds down. How about we do this? I know it's not written anywhere. There's no timing involved with it. But what I normally see when I step into the flight deck of the airplane and when I'm doing my pre-flight is I know approximately where that brake pressure should be if the parking brake isn't set. So let's go ahead and pressurize the system, and let's go ahead and, of course, the brakes will be set. Then I release the brakes, and let's see what happens then. So I release the parking brakes, and guess what happened? The pressure blew off. Oh, it did it not. Okay. did not. I said, so now that what that tells me is that it is indeed exactly what you're saying, but there's no other way for you to prove it. You're just trying to tell me to take the airplane. I'm, I'm not going to do that. So um, we, eventually took the, uh, we eventually took the airplane up to us just without any issue. Um, prior to that, also, I had a, a, a low-altitude go-around uh, going into uh, Panama City. Had heavy, heavy, heavy rain go around and it was yep (laughs) any opportunity i have to play that thank you (laughs) there you go here you go we actually did a go around uh and that was my leg it was heavy rain and you know i I didn't catch it uh early on because it was it was just really bumpy and it was heavy rain i was really trying to focus on a lot of different things at that point but we had about a 43 knot tailwind and i couldn't figure out why i could not get the airplane slowed down uh, on no, not on the ground, Rick. I see the reaction. <laughs> t- tailwind uh, on down, coming down, final. All right, and it, and it, right. Dropped, and it dropped off down to nothing. I Actually, gonna, I was going to say, wow. yeah, we, we can <laughs> we can land with like a fifty knot tailwind, no problem. Yeah, not an issue. The <laughs> eighty-eight, <laughs> it's a it's a ten thousand foot rowing, no issue. <laughs> but I didn't notice it on the approach, and then we, you know, because initially one of the things that caught my attention, you know, way before we even got into the Panama City Beach area, was that the winds were in excess of, in exceedance of our crosswind limitation, direct crosswind gusting to 35 knots. So, of course, that brought my radar up real quick. Once we got into the area, what it was is it was a complete line of weather that was moving through, and we caught the tail end of it on, on approach. I tried to get the airplane configured, slow down, and uh, the airplane just wasn't having it because we had such a high tailwind. Um, and uh, trying to go down and slow down, it's just, I mean, I was in flaps 20. I wasn't with that type of wind. I was not going to go to flaps 40. So flaps 28 gear down, and it's, uh, the aircraft would just not slow down. So finally got down to about 150 feet, and I said, you want to know what this is just, and, and, the, and the rain was so heavy, you could barely see the runway. So we're out of here. And, and actually, at that point, I was already hand flying. So that was... Uh, 
it was nice to be flying with a, uh, my co-pilot. I've, it, and this is kind of a neat story. Uh, Matt is the first pilot that I had as a co-pilot at ASA when I was back there um, when I upgraded to captain. Then when I was here at Acme, when I upgraded at Acme, he was one of the first pilots that I ever flew with at Acme when I was in the left seat in the 88. And now one of my last flights probably, or getting close to it, is now the same guy, Matt. So anyways, we, we, he, he handled it perfectly. We, I handled it perfectly. No, no, uh, no issues with uh, leveling off altitudes, headings, overspeeding the aircraft, underspeeding the aircraft. It was just, you know, it would have put a, a tear in the instructor's eye. So we came back around. By the time we came back around, the weather had moved out, and, and uh, no, no further issue there. So made the right choice, didn't try to land the aircraft out of an unstable approach. Felt good about that. Excellent. So that's uh, that's about all on my side. Uh, actually, no, I have one more thing. I had a uh, Acme ramper I was talking to today on the ramp, kind of like when I was talking uh, to that uh, gentleman up in Omaha uh, a couple uh, last week, um, and asked me directly about the uh, the program that we have at Acme for helping pilots to come from inside the company. He's a private pilot, and so I you know had a nice conversation with him, helping him to be encouraged. Um, to go ahead and move forward, even though uh, right now we're in a down downtime. So had a very nice conversation today. That's All it. All right. Excellent. Well, glad you're still uh, in one piece and uh, not COVID-19 positive. Yay. Yeah, so far. As far as we know. As far as I know. Yeah. All right. Uh, let's see. For me, um, I've been pretty much here since the last show. <laughs> Right. I mean, exactly right here. I don't think I've moved. Actually, no. Um, being home and not having a lot to do has actually allowed me to thank you has allowed me to um, uh, go out and get a little bit more exercise than I'm normally used to. So uh, pretty much every day now I've gone out for about a five mile walk, mostly walk. And so that's good. And um, nice. We, we encourage that. Yeah, that's a good thing. Keep your distance from others, but oh, yeah. there's hardly anybody else out there. Um, and they see me coming and they run the other way. Uh, that's normal, though. <laughs> it's always been like that. Uh, but uh, yeah, so uh, we're just kind of hunkering down. And I'm trying to, I you know, I don't know if uh, the last trip that I flew, I don't know, I could have been exposed to something on the trip. So I'm kind of trying to socially isolate myself with my family for the most part, although, um, for, for meals we, uh, or for dinner, we usually get together, but you know, we keep our space. Uh, but, uh, Hasn't been, that been going on for years. Pardon me. Hasn't that been going on for years? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. So everything is pretty much normal <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, nothing has really changed. So, um, let's see. I, uh, was thinking about something. Oh yeah. So, Rick, um, anything, any, um, you know, we talked about the milestone of your, of your check ride, uh, mm-hmm. last weekend, but are, are there any milestones, uh, like, um, anniversaries coming up anytime soon? Like maybe on, uh, is it Sunday? Um, Oh, happy about- birthday to I- you. <laughs> Squash I- tomatoes and stew. <laughs> Bread and butter in the gutter. Happy birthday, Happy birthday to you. To you. All right. Happy birthday. Yay. Happy birthday, Rick. Yay. Yay. Thank you. Thank you. Happy birthday to you. All right. Oh, man, 18, yeah. 18. A little birdie told yeah. me. 
Yeah, 22, actually. I'll be able to have a beer legally now. Oh, nice. All right. All right. Oh, I thought it was 25 in your state. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, flat level 390. Still not in, uh, still in our VSM airspace here. <laughs> so, uh, barely. Barely. <laughs> Just barely. Barely. Getting, barely. Getting up there. <laughs> getting up there. Yeah. No. Still 1,000 foot separation, so we're, we're good. Uh, yeah, Sunday. Sunday will be at 39, so um, it's, it's, well, it's coming quick. I hope that you have a, a very safe socially distance uh, distance birthday celebration. Uh, I guess you'll still yeah, be in Miami, yeah. right? I'm looking forward to a uh, to a lonely acai bowl and a uh, <laughs> and a bottle of water. It's gonna be great. Oh, Aww. that's so Aww. sad. Yeah. It's gonna be you know it's gonna be better than my same uh, St. Patty's in Kuwait City though. So uh, that's yeah, gonna be good. That's true. But yeah, not a, not a big uh, holiday for them in Kuwait. <laughs> no, no, not really. They don't they don't really do the uh, the Irish pubs in Kuwait City too. Not dying the rivers green and you know. No, no, they don't. They don't. Yeah, they don't. Uh, they they wear the 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 white uh, flowing whatever they're called and they don't they don't switch those out for green ones that day so uh and which is they, they, you can't even they don't even sell alcohol there do they oh no nothing it's and it's 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 funny because a lot of times so you're you're when we go in there we won't actually park at the passenger terminal even if we're flying uh, um soldiers around we'll we'll go off and park in the they have a military uh ramp where you see a lot of these uh tankers and c-17s and c5 type airplanes and so they'll take us from there to the uh corporate terminal corporate airline uh, corporate uh, jet terminal you know very nice place you know like like they 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 do it up in the middle east quite well and so as you as you walk out of the terminal you have to put your luggage through an x-ray and the reason why they do that is they want to make sure that you're not taking you know any 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 alcohol off the airplane with you and and uh oftentimes um these 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 guys will will actually break into your um water bottles make sure it's not uh, uh clear alcohol i guess so uh no vodka. They'll, open it, they'll open it up you know smell it make sure it's not alcohol so yeah they're uh they don't they don't they don't do their drinking but tell you what you cross that bridge to, you cross that bridge into bahrain and it's uh, it's like vegas over there <laughs> so um it's 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 interesting it's like well what i can see the mainland from here you understand that right it's just the damn bridge it's like it's fine. Yeah. yeah just rules are rules. Whatever. Yeah. They, they better not come over to my house because that's why I was late. I was actually stopping by the uh, liquor store because we're going under um, um, with the uh, the lockdown starting tomorrow. So I wasn't sure if it was going to be open. So I don't need a shopping cart when I go to the supermarket, but I sure do need one when I go to the liquor store, especially during <laughs> these times. <laughs> <laughs> well provisioned, eh? There you go. And especially not knowing whether I mean I don't know with this lockdown whether we you know stay in place, I guess it's called. Don't yeah. know if I can go to my uh well provisioned boat this weekend. So although that is a second home, isn't it? I certainly that qualifies as why not? It's my yeah. second home. So yeah. I would be staying in place on my boat. There you go. Not know. interacting with anyone else. Just nah. Sounds reasonable to me. All right. Anything else before we move on to the coffee fund? Nope. Let's do it. Oh, and just a quick. Um, <laughs> so if you do um, want to know what's going on with the crew and meetups and that kind of thing, which whenever that starts happening again, uh, you can check out our APG community calendar, which is on the website, uh, airlinepilotguy.com slash calendar. Right now you'll see nothing there as far as trips. 
Uh, I do actually have a schedule, but it's not a realistic one, and I really don't know where I'm going to be uh, for the rest of the month. So, And it wouldn't matter anyway, would it? And we wouldn't be able to get together in any of these places I'll be laying over. So uh, hopefully soon you'll, you'll uh, see some populated uh, data on the airlinepilotguy.com slash calendar, the APG community calendar. So just thought I'd mention that. It's not a mistake. There's nothing there. <laughs> so hopefully soon, right? Okay. And with that, I think we should go over here to our coffee fund. The great Johnny Jeff Alex Smith. I love coffee. I love tea. I love the APG community. Coffee and tea and the Java and me. A cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. All right. Well, you can tell I've not been singing lately. My voice is... Ah. Anyway, a uh, couple different ways to join the Coffee Fun Cadre. You can use the uh, Coffee Fun Classic method. And since the last show, a lot of you have stepped up. Thank you very much. Uh, really do appreciate that. We have Rich McKinney, Jason Kuntz, Alistair Kerr, uh, Vigner, uh, Graham Fig, Duncan Stiles, Randolph Ackerman, and Ludger Humpert. Humpert. I'm, I hope I'm doing that justice. Ludger or Luger uh, from Germany. And uh, one of them sent in a little note with their uh, contribution. Uh, this is from Graham. He says, we are two South Africans hooked on your show. He's talking about his friend Myron Marcus. And this is Graham Fig. Uh, one is an ex fixed wing and helicopter general aviation pilot now living in Cape Town, the other an ex-airline pilot presently flying charter out of Long Island, New York. You have sustained us both with your insightful aviation podcast over the past few years. When and how do you see aviation coming back from the blight of the corona era? Warm regards, Graham Fig and Myron Marcus. So thank you for that nice uh, note. Um, we're not sure, you know, how and when this is going to happen, but we don't have that crystal ball. We wish we did, but uh, hopefully, uh, I think all of us here are pretty positive people. So I think we, uh, we'll, we'll see things get back to normal, you know, better again soon, I'm hoping, rather than later. Um, the other way to become a patron of the show is the, uh, uh, or become part of the Coffee Fun Cadre is to become a patron of the show via Patreon. And uh, that's patreon.com slash airline pilot guy. And we have three new patrons since the last episode. We have Gustav, Hal Benjamin, and Nick Griffith. So thank you guys for uh, stepping up to the plate and becoming patrons of the show. Uh, you, you know, I really can't tell you how much we do appreciate the folks that uh, support the show financially. You know, and it's one of those things in the time that we're in and people are losing jobs. It's it's understandable for many of you to either decrease or even completely, um, you know, eliminate your contributions to the, uh, to the coffee fund. And trust me, you know, we've said all along, this is a free show. We do it out of a labor of love. It's nice to get you know, help with reimbursing some of the cost of doing the show. But trust me, um, you know, money is important right now, especially in this time that we're living uh, so um, please don't feel bad about that if you need to cut back or completely eliminate any contributions. Uh, so uh, with that, um, I think uh, now would be a good time for us to hit our feedback segment. Captain, incoming message. 
So we talked about this on the uh, last show, and I don't believe, yeah, Rick, you weren't with us. Um, mm-hmm. Not last because we did actually. Uh, Rick and I did talk about this on the uh, on the crew log, but since we're talking to the general audience now, let's uh, go ahead and read it. But before I do that, I need to turn my picture back on behind me. I guess it timed out or something. All I can see at the moment is it says twit. Because I'm a twit. <laughs> this week in tech, for those who don't know, right? Yes, exactly yeah. right. I like the first interpretation better. <laughs> well, I am a twit. Double, that's for sure. double meaning uh, <laughs> at the moment. Let's see no, if I can get this thing back on. That's okay. Oh, I, yeah. I, won't, I won't take it personally, Steph. I, I know that you, you hate me. <laughs> oh, wow. You know, that's not true. a strong word, isn't not, it? Yes. I <laughs> okay. hate anyone. Extreme dislike. Strong dislike. <laughs> strong dislike. <laughs> okay. Uh, let's see. Item one. Uh, Rick. Wait a minute. No. Oh, that was uh, my cue to tell me that this is something that applies to Rick. Well, we talked, okay, let me start over again. <laughs> so we talked about this on an earlier episode. Uh, Rick wasn't with us. Um, and uh, the reason why we still have this in the, in the feedback folder is because we thought we'd get uh, Rick's take on this. And one of the things, this is, uh, if you'll remember, the uh, aviation maintenance student, Frank Amaro, was charged with bribing an FAA-designated uh, a mechanic examiner in exchange for re- uh, receiving a passing score on the FAA's airframe and power plant examination or AMP. And I said during that episode, a couple of episodes ago, uh, well, I wish Rick were here because he has an AMP license. Uh, and um, we were kind of surmising whether or not this, this examination is like a, is a, a big deal or not. And, you know, I think it was Nick that said that he didn't think it was that, you know, extensive or hard of a, of an examination, but I thought, well, let's go ahead and put this back into the feedback folder. And then when Rick is back with us, he can tell us. Yeah. And then uh, we, we did, we did talk about that in the, uh, during the, uh, the, um, the Patreon. Yeah. And the, the, yeah. Mm -hmm. And the crew log. Exactly. And just as Nick says, it's, it's not, it's not a hard examination really all it is. So, all right. So air from a power plant, right. It's two different, it's two separate certifications. And for every FA certification you get, it's, there's three, three parts to it. There's a, uh, there's a written exam, there's an oral examination, and then there's a practical, um, portion to getting uh, that, that certification. Um, so you do one, of each for your airframe and power plant certifications. And then eventually you get your AMP. Uh, and I was telling Jeff that when I got mine, um, I went to AMP school right up here, up the road, uh, right next to, uh, MIA. That's uh, George T Baker aviation school. And, um, uh, for my airframe certification, I remember doing a, you go through your question bank of questions that you're going to be, you know, the, the, where the, where I, I think it was 80 or a hundred questions. I, and I forget how, how many questions are in the question bank exactly, but you go through the entire question bank, kind of like when you, you know, get your private pilot's license, there's a question bank that you study, right? So you take that exam, uh, 80% passing or 70% passing grade, I think it is. And then, uh, with that certificate, you go and, uh, meet up with your mechanic examiner, your maintenance examiner, and he's going to give you a quick uh, oral examination, also based on a a 
uh, not gouge, but uh, on 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 a on a booklet of what you can expect the questions to be. And after you get through with that, he's going to give you a not an overly you know complicated task or or thing to you know quote unquote fix. And I was uh, I was I mentioned how uh, back when I went through that over 20 years ago or 20 years ago or so um we used to have a uh a 720 it was an old uh, united it used to belong to united airlines and a 720 is a it's a shorter uh version of the 707 uh, also shorter range and it used to be parked out there until um one of these hurricanes came through and cracked one of the trunnion bolts on the landing gear and it was unstable so they had to get it out of there um, and one, and, and the thing that I had to do for my exam was I had to um, run a cable, a throttle cable from the quadrant to the, all down the fuselage, uh, to the wing route and out to the fuel control unit of on one of the engines there. So you do that. And really it's, it's, it's really not that complicated because all you do is you just go to the aircraft library, you know, pick out the chapter that you're going to be working off of. And just basically it's like baking a cake. You just follow the you know, procedure step by step, making sure that you complete all the steps and then you torque things correctly. And then you, you check your work and then you do a, you do a small functionality test, make sure that it, you know, that's, that it works. You obviously can't turn the engine on because the plane has been sitting there for years. And the same thing with power plant. I was trying to remember, I think it was a, a fuel control thing I did as well, hydromechanical fuel control thing I did as well for my power plant certification. But it's really not that hard. I mean, just as long as you pass your exam and, you know, and 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 follow the steps of of the of the maintenance manual, you should be fine. Common mistakes are uh, not torquing things correctly, for example, not safety wiring things the way you should, leaving things behind. Uh, and as long as you're methodical, you know, you you should be fine, just like anything else in life. So, so I had taken his time to actually, you know, study a little bit, and he could have saved himself twenty five hundred bucks. And I don't know, did the guy go to jail? <laughs> I'm not sure. He probably won't ever get a an AMP examination yeah, ever, right? That and the tarnished reputation for yeah. you know for what? So, come on, be smart. Yeah, it was not smart at all. All right. Well, thanks. Rick, we had surmised that it was, or we had expected that it wasn't that too difficult. Nah. Okay. Uh, two, Josh sent this to us and uh, he says, hi there, everyone. Hope you're all well. I thought this might help some in the community during this aviation downtime. A company called Checkride Prep is offering a free online private pilot ground school program. It's a 12 session course that began last night and he was writing this on um Well, the 31st of March, so it started on the 30th of March. It's on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at 5 p.m. Pacific, and each session is about three hours. Uh, There's a uh, they they are a Part 61 school out of Camarillo, California, or Camarillo, I guess. It's a great way to kill some quarantine time and actually learn something in the process. Thanks for the great shows. Josh Glaze in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and uh, he sent us a link to this. I tried to register with them. It took them a while to get back to me to give me a password, and then I screwed up and uh, didn't uh, remember what the password was that they gave me. So (laughs) I had to submit uh, a request for a a new password, so I haven't gotten very far with it. Um, But uh, it looks like it's a a pretty neat uh, thing. It's free, Uh, so those of you who are 
you know, thinking about maybe sometime getting a private pilot license, it would be worth maybe checking this out and see, seeing what it's all about. Uh, again, that was, or a, maybe if you haven't been uh, flying for a while or feeling mm-hmm. a little rusty, it's a free, refresher. not yeah. a little refresher course. Absolutely. And I don't know awesome if it's like, enough. you know, tied to exact times or if you can go back after the fact. And uh, so it looks like I'm just looking at the outline they have. It looks yeah. like they're on class number three right now, which becomes available on the third. So that's this week. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I didn't register for it, um, so I'm not sure. But it looks like you should be able to go back and access the, the first two classes. That's why I was hoping to register and actually sign in and, and push <laughs> yeah, some, maybe of, I'll, I'll some go of those ahead buttons. And, and do it too. Maybe you'll have see. better luck than I had. But don't expect the, the email back from them right I away. Just, <laughs> I just have to remember my password is all you're saying, right? Yeah, yeah, when yeah, you okay. because you get it gives you a link and then it puts the password there, and I I guess I had expected my password manager manager to actually remember the password, and it didn't. And then I get to this other login thing and I go, oh, I don't know what the password. And it was like one of those complicated strong passwords. Uh, there's no way I could possibly remember it. And I'm thinking, what happened to LastPass? You're supposed to remember these things. <laughs> well, so. okay, it does. Yeah, exactly. It does say you can use the online learning platform to watch recorded episodes, resources, and more. So I oh, think good. they do a weekly webinar, but it looks like that they record it as well. Okay. Is it uh, free? Yes, free. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. So uh, that might be a good uh, chance for people out there listening to the show if you're interested in maybe one of these days, or as Steph mentioned, uh, somebody who uh, yeah. hasn't flown for a while. It's just great if you have a general interest in aviation, exactly, you know, because there's lots of good stuff in there. I've no doubt, right? But don't don't take you know. Now I'm thinking to myself, maybe it'd be better for them not to do that because then they'll know that we're when we're talking about stuff and answering questions that we're actually wrong. Well, I'm totally signing up with an ah. alias. <laughs> <I'm just kidding>. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Anyway. Orville Wright. Yes. <laughs> okay, you got Orville, Orville wrong. I'm Wilbur. Orville wrong. <laughs> <laughs> or in my case, or oh, you're wrong. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so check it out. It'll be in ITSN in the show notes. Um, Ian sent this to us. Uh, hi, guys. Uh, can Rick's new 767 with the Gucci avionics <laughs> do a cat two s cat two s a approach? Guessing it is a no with the Mad Dog. Regards, Ian. And no, we don't do um, on the Mad Dog. We do cat one, cat two, cat threes, but we don't do any s a or special authorization. I think that's what that stands for, right? S a special authorization. Huh? Silly <laughs> well, that's another, yeah, another way. Yeah. I'll do a lot of those, actually. Okay. Um, but uh, anyway, uh, Rick, the question was specifically for you. No, I don't believe we do. Uh, but uh, really, I don't. I don't really. I don't really see why you would um, Need plan to. for a cat two approach if there's a cat three approach available. I understand some some runways don't have are not category three. Um, I have an answer equipped. for that. What's that? Well, because cat three, uh, all the, uh, all the, um, uh, all the meter, the readouts, uh, RVRs are controlling. Right. right. So, right. right. So in on a cat two, you can actually let, all right. So cat three, let's say it says 600, 600, 300. And a cat three, you would not be able to shoot that approach on a cat two. You would be able to do that. Hmm. Right, 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 right. 
But uh, but I mean, but, it, yeah, also, I mean it also it also depends on the cat three because you have cat three A, cat three B, cat three C. So it so um and at at some point, yeah, all, all three transmissionometers are are required. But it gets to a point where where two are controlling, and then the last one might not have to be depending on the level of cat three that you're talking about. So sure. so um so yeah, and, but. And I misspoke, by the way, because a cat two you can't go to six hundred. So it, it's either usually about a thousand or twelve hundred. Yeah, yeah, higher yeah. RBR in the yeah. touchdown zone, but the rollout could be you know three hundred, and you have to have a thousand, twelve hundred. Where I did have this exact example going to Columbus, Ohio, uh, about a month ago. Hmm. Yeah. But uh, but but exactly as as Dana says here. Um, so basically, the difference between Cat two and Cat three, Category two, Category three, and Category one, really, it's 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 all about the visibility required for the approach and the and the height of the ceiling or the cloud, the the, the lowest cloud layer there, and and you need to break out at a certain altitude and have a certain amount of visibility to to shoot a specific approach. And the higher you go the lower the visibility can be for you to be able to shoot that approach. Now, a lot of these, uh, a lot of airlines have uh, customized Jefferson charts. So, and the way you can tell is usually on the, on the, on the top of the page there, what designates the number of the approach, say usually a, an ILS for an airport X is 11 dash one, you know, so that, that that number there on the left of it's going to be there's going to be a, a little bit of a of a um, blacks filled in square and that usually tells you that that chart is customized for the airline and if you go to the bottom of that page and you, know, you look at the minimums those are minimums that are authorized per operational specifications for your airline to shoot so uh, that that keeps you legal there but but again i mean you you if if there's a cat 3 approach available why why not why not shoot that one because if you if you shoot a cat if you you know brief for a cat 2 load for a cat 2 and shoot for a cat 2 and then you get to the point where you have to make a decision based on visibility to land and you don't have the required visibility and you car have to go around your car to go around whether when if you can if you shoot and and brief and actually fly a cat 3 and minimums happen to be cat 2 you can still land no problem, but uh, the avionics themselves. I mean, these. I tell you, man, these la- these large display systems are are great. You know, big big screens in front of you, a lot of information, situational awareness is is, is amazing. It reminds me a lot of the uh, of the uh, screens of the triple seven. A lot of that stuff is is very much the same, and the. Uh, but believe it or not, the uh, the Autoland Status Initiator, which is a little piece of equipment that uh, is separate from the primary and, and navigational display, even in the new avionics, is still separate on the 767, even with the LDS mod on it. So uh, it, it doesn't show up on your primary flight display as it does on the 78, the 777, the 74. Is that the uh, Salt Lake City version of the uh, That is the Salt the Lake LDS, City version. Um, What's oh, that? LDS. What? You said the LDS. <laughs> LDS. Yeah, they. Uh, it's it's not the one. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Jesus Christ, what are you saying? Let's see. All my all my Mormon friends out there. <laughs> hey. We love you guys. Um, the uh, SA approaches are kind of a kind of a different animal. And the only time I uh, I see them at uh, Acme, or we I guess uh, some of our fleet seven thirty sevens that had have the HUD, the heads up display, uh, or head up display. Um, have sometimes a special category one uh, SA cat one approach that actually gets below. I think it goes down to 150 and not 200 or something like that. So there are some circumstances where they can get in 
uh, based uh, on using those special procedures. But I think that's the only airplane at um, yeah. Acme that has the SA approaches. But, but, but here's the thing. Even on a Category 1, when you need to have 200 feet, uh, there's a 200-foot uh, uh, ceiling there. If you break out and you see the approach lights, that gives you an extra 100 feet to get below that. So, you know. In a, in a right, it's our, it's that's a VSA approach, very special authorization mm-hmm. approach. Exactly. So, yeah. And at the end of the day, all, all these things really are because the capability, the, the capability or the systems is the same. Really, all this is, is just paperwork. And, yeah. you know, it's really just signing and, 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 and paying for the certification and having that piece of paper uh, that that legally allows you to do it. Yeah, I just got to look up op spec slash M spec slash LOAC 060 or call the flight operations group at 202-267-8795. And and that and that number that offspec zero six zero is the same chapter offspecs for low visibility operation uh, low visibility approaches for for every airline. So if that offspec zero six zero, it's it's whenever you hear that, it's all about cat two and cat three approaches. All right, yeah. very good. Thanks, Ian. Good question. Yeah. Um, Paul uh, writes in uh, a very short piece of feedback. How great to have Rick back. He was greatly missed. <laughs> so no. Paul, you have a you have a fan, Rick. Paul. Yay. <laughs> Thank you very much, Paul. Glad to be back. It's, uh, it feels uh, feels like home, absolutely. And Ham Radio Jim uh, said he was very interested uh, in your recent description of how the 767 tends to be a tail dragger. I can't mm. remember if this was during takeoff or landing or both situations, but this fact led me to my concern. The U.S. Air Force has chosen this airframe for its newest tanker, the KC-46, doesn't it seem strange that they would choose that aircraft with a tendency for tail dragging for an airborne tanker with its in-flight refueling boom and other appurtenances? Wow, I don't think I've ever seen that word before. Appurtenances hanging off the rear end. That is all. Great to have you back on the regular team, Rick. And again, that's Ham Radio Jim. Well, I don't think that's an issue because the, uh, the KC-46 is based on a Dash 200 fuselage. Shorter. And yeah, it's a short airplane. So if you look at the uh, right off the top of my head here, off the flight crew training manual, uh, uh, tail contact on a 76-200 happens north of 15 degrees. Oh, there he is. There he is. <laughs> <laughs> tail contact with the ground happens north of 15 degrees, nose up attitude with the struts compressed. So that's plenty of room there. And that the airplane's going to jump off the ground before you get there on takeoff. And then on the landing roll, really. Um, you flare to just about three or four degrees nose up on, on, on landing. Now I, I, I did, uh, we did talk about a couple episodes ago uh, about the, the effect of the spoilers popping up on landing and what that does to your nose up moment there. But, uh, that's really not that big an issue on the 200 because it's your, it's so much shorter than the 321 feet, actually shorter than the 300. So on the 200, it's not really that big an issue. Now I imagine there's going to be some kind of, um, uh, I guess, uh, limitations with the boom in the back there, but, uh, it's not like it protrudes that, uh, no. that, that far. It's almost flush. Yeah. It doesn't. Yeah. When it's recessed, it's pretty yeah. much, uh, you know, a part of the fuselage appurtenance, by the way, is a noun, an accessory or other item associated with a particular activity or style of living. Look at that. Oh, there you go. So, so Casey 46, it's a lifestyle. It is. <laughs> yes. Yeah. A very bad one. Especially if you have them hanging off your rear end. You might have very other problems. Oh, no, see. Yes, very <laughs> nice. Yes, yes. 
All right. Well, thank you, Ham Radio Jim. And let's move on to some audio feedback from Aviator Tony. Hey there, all my APG friends. How are you? This is Aviator Tony here. Uh, Just got off a trip. Just finished uh, coming in from Honolulu. Landed at Los Angeles Airport in what uh, the ATIS deemed as heavy rain. Uh, which is a rare occurrence here in Southern California. And now I'm braving the Los Angeles freeways trying to get home after a trip. And if I don't make it, tell my wife and kids I love them. Uh, but seriously, uh, listening to episode 417, and I'm absolutely enjoying it. Just want to say thank you for keeping the show so positive. Uh, amongst all this COVID-19 you know, news reports and stories that's bombarding all of the uh, the airways. Uh, it is creating a lot of stress and anxiety, especially amongst the aviation community. I talked a little bit about it in the show that I produced there, the Squawk Ident podcast, and you know, it is starting to really make a lot of aviators nervous. And I was wondering, uh, Jeff and Dana, this is uh, directed to you, if. They're going to park the Mad Dogs ahead of schedule over at Acme, or are they going to keep them on their previously planned retirement schedule? I did read that Acme was uh, planning on parking quite a few aircraft, as uh, I think all of the airlines are doing in an effort to cut costs during this time. Also, uh, I enjoyed listening to uh, Dana's information about the FAA mandatory training for the observation flights. Uh, That is something that over at Legacy Airlines, they're also doing that as well. They've been doing that uh, for quite some time. Um, We also did that over at the regional carrier where I was uh, a Czech Airman for a few years. And I can't stress how important that training is. It really does help kick off IOE with a lot better understanding of what is required and what's expected. Um, I can also tell you that after a decade of commuting back and forth from Los Angeles to Chicago uh, with my previous carrier, that all that time that I spent on a cockpit jump seat observing the crew members perform their duties, their SOPs, run their checklist for over half a dozen different carriers that I had jump sat on and all the different types of aircraft that I was able to sit in the jump seat and observe how they conducted business. It really did shape my aviation career and and the way I operate. Uh, I learned so much just from observing. And you really do get that wide-angle perspective on how things are done. And like... Like you said, both uh, Dana and Jeff, you do learn from from your experiences, uh, good, bad, and otherwise. In terms of the maturity factor of pilots, uh, it's my opinion that you really can't teach that. I mean, that really just depends on the individual. I've flown with very young individuals that are absolutely professional in every way, shape, or form. And I've flown with some of the older individuals that act less mature than teenagers sometimes. Um, So that's a tough one. 
And I just don't think that training is going to correct that behavior. There's got to be a way to try to weed out the individuals that maybe have no business performing flight duties. But that's neither here nor there and not for me to say as well. Really enjoying the show. Captain Nick, I hope you feel better. I hope you get over whatever is ailing you right now. It's a very scary time. I I understand and look forward to hearing you uh, on the show. And um, Mr. Miami Rick, uh, congratulations on the upgrade. Uh, Glad to hear you back and glad to listen to your perspective on systems and your experiences. I'm really enjoying them and look forward to hearing more. And uh, just didn't want to leave you out, uh, Dr. Steph. Uh, always, always glad to hear you on the show as well. You really do keep these guys in check. Good job. It's a lot of work. I understand. But uh, keep doing what you're doing because it's working. Anyway, guys, uh, thanks again. Uh, we'll talk to you soon. Thank you, Aviator Tony. And is, uh, he's the host of that wonderful aviation podcast called Squawk Ident. And uh, just uh, it's found in where where you find all your fine aviation podcasts out there. Um, So, uh, yeah, it's always great to hear uh, audio feedback, especially one with filled with so much (laughs) ambiance. Yeah, Yeah. it must be a real professional uh, audio expert on his podcast. (laughs) He did. He did say he apologized for all the (laughs) all the ambiance. He was driving on the L.A. freeways in moderate rain. I thought I heard his windshield wipers there at one point. Yeah. I was like, oh, that's this. Yeah. <laughs> hey, we've heard a lot worse. Trust me. Yeah. Actually, <laughs> it's not bad uh, audio for the inside of a car. No. I thought it was not bad. Well, he's a, he's a podcaster. He knows what he's doing, right? <laughs> <laughs> right on the money. Just an aside, uh, watching all of these uh, major um, you know networks and stuff and doing uh, their – Social distancing from home and everything else. I'm thinking, oh my gosh! I mean, they have no idea what they're doing. <laughs> a lot of them, it's like really. They should have. Uh, they should have contracted with us. We could provide expert. Uh, yeah. You know, I'm like thinking a money a, on the side. A, a lot of the podcasts out there do so much better than some of these people in their living rooms or or whatever at their homes. They're just like ter- microphones and mute buttons go oh, a long way. Man, oh yeah, terrible audio, terrible. Anyway. Okay. Thank you uh, again, Aviator Tony. And again, folks, make sure that you uh, look, check the show notes and then you'll, we'll have a link there to the Squawk Ident podcast. You okay there, Dana? No, the, the mute button's on. <laughs> Are you trying to talk and nothing's <laughs> Speaking happening? Speaking of. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I did, I did that <laughs> oh, okay. Okay. Um, you know, I forgot to mention uh, something. I'm looking at some of the uh, overlays that I have in the um, overlay section of the stream yard here. Uh, one is, um, let's see, and that's up there on there, on there now, isn't there? Uh, that is uh, that is Louisiana Steve. Uh, he is our uh, Lyft Academy instructor. Um, I'm not sure, I haven't heard from him in the last couple of weeks, so I'm not sure how this whole COVID-19 thing is affecting his, um, his journey. Uh, but uh, he is at the uh, Lyft Academy. Republic Airlines runs this thing in uh, at Indianapolis, and uh, it got cut off because I had to kind of make it fit that uh, window. If you're watching the video, but uh, I guess they highlight certain students at the school, and there's a little blurb about him, and and uh, so I'll, I'll put a link to that as well 
in the show notes so you can check out that page. But I was I, I looked at that because I was looking up something about the Lift Academy. I went, oh, I know that guy. <laughs> so they have uh, Steve uh, there, Steve Nicholson at the Lift Academy. So I thought I'd mention that. And can uh, we uh, readdress Tony's question that we kind of skipped over? Oh, okay. Um, sure, go ahead. I, I forgot what what it was that he was uh, asking us about. Me, me too. No, I'm like, <laughs> okay. So let me play it again then. <laughs> no, I'm like, uh, no. Uh, he asked about the plan of our oh, yeah, beloved yeah. airplane gotcha. and what's going on with that. In actuality, Tony, it's changing uh, almost moment by moment, day by day. Uh, latest that I have heard is they're not going to park all of the 88s and 90s now. Um, they're going to keep several rounds. As a matter of fact, uh, Dispatcher Mike sent a text today with quite a bit of information. And uh, let's see what I'm just trying to get to it real quick here. Uh, I'm not going to read the whole I thing. I think it said but, it's going to leave us with 41 uh, for the time being, I think. Uh uh, so far, 30, 32 have been parked. Mm-hmm. Uh, five of them are, uh, all of them except for five, so that makes it 27, if I can do public math. Uh, uh, slate five can come back out of permanent park, and only 32 of them. So, um, yeah, uh, I think, was that leave us 40-something? 40 41, I think. 41, somewhere in there. So, yeah, and that's a changing target. But, you know, eventually in the next couple of years, they're all going to be gone probably sooner rather than later. But at least it's a little it's a little respite from, you know, parking them all forever right away, which is what we had feared uh, when this whole thing kind of started off as far as parking airplanes. Well, you know what? I think it uh, it, it might have something to do with. Uh, I don't know if you guys heard about the latest uh, from the uh, from the A220 and their issues with their Pratt Whitney uh, uh, engines. There, apparently, there's some um, some problem with uh, uh, some resonance issue that's causing uncontained engine failure. So, I uh, I wonder if that uh, in a way uh, helps things out for the Mad Dog fleet. Mm-hmm. I think that might be part of it. I've actually flown a trip that covered. A uh, A220 um, turn from Detroit to Dallas and back uh, because of mm. the fact that it's not, you know, they're still going through teething pains and especially that new, mm-hmm. you know, pure, what do they call that? Pure power, I think, the uh, Pratt & Whitney uh, geared turbofan, mm. uh, whatever it's called. Uh, but, uh, yeah, they definitely are, are having some issues with it. So that might be part of it. I think um, it's the mad dog pilots chucking coins into the engine. <laughs> really? Like the, it, yeah. yeah. Take it like, yeah. The, like the Chinese for good luck. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly the same. <laughs> Have a great flight. Good luck. Yeah. <laughs> well, aren't you going to be, be flying on this flight? Nope. No, oh. I'm not, not going to fly on this flight. <laughs> I'll wait behind. Yeah, I'll, I'll take like the next one. <laughs> you, you go ahead. Okay. Yeah, I'm sorry, Aviator Tony. I, I, that was at the big, big beginning of his uh, audio, and I completely forgot about it because I have a very short ex- um, attention span. Short little attention span. Yeah, that's... Uh, that's what she said. I think we're approximately at that point where uh, we get to the best part of the show, which, of course, is the old pilot's plane tales and this week's installment is entitled the triangle let's see what that's all about
The Old Pilot's Plain Tales The Triangle We are all aware that they walk amongst us. No, not aliens who have disguised themselves as humans, but those who believe they have. I have no wish to offend believers, but I'm afraid I don't class myself as one who gives credence to pseudoscience, such as the modern flat earthers, astrologists, geocentrists, moon landing deniers, hollow earthers, ley line new ageists, colon cleansers, crystal healers, hexagonal water sellers, tinfoil hat wearers, urine drinkers, phrenology believers, levitators, or rumpologists who can apparently read your character and future by examining the crevices, dimples, warts, moles, and folds of your buttocks. Call me a little sceptical, but I'm not sure that we're the genetically engineered labourers of the Anunnaki of Nibiru, who apparently came to Earth 400,000 years ago, Seemingly clever enough to create us to do their bidding, their culture wasn't up to surviving an ice age, so they departed, leaving us behind, a bit like abandoning an unwanted pet. Nor do I believe that an obscure mystic from central India met a great saint who revealed to him a manuscript written in Sanskrit that was several thousand years old. The Shastra gave details of various types of aircraft for both civil and military aviation, including cargo carrying helicopters, as well as comprehensive descriptions of the principles of flight, which, sadly, violate Newton's laws of motion. It appears that the manuscript came into existence between 1900 and 1922 and was made by channeling long-dead ancient rishis. Right, brothers, step aside, you weren't the first. I could mention many other pseudosciences, but risk alienating more of you than I would like. But many beliefs just don't adhere to accepted scientific standards, the scientific method, falsifiability of claims and such. That is not my aim, I just want to refute one. And while I'm on the subject, please don't write to me in support of your own beloved piece of quirkiness. Aside from telepathy, werewolves, clairvoyance, witches, and Carl Sagan's invisible dragon that he keeps in his garage, I don't believe in any of them. Many times I flew from London to Florida or the Caribbean, taking a fuselage full of holiday makers out to enjoy the delights of the sunshine state or down to exotic tropical islands like St. Lucia. On the way, I would often pass over the British overseas territory of Bermuda and would look down on the beautiful pink sand beaches and the cerulean blue waters dotted with coral reefs. It would look idyllic, but little did I know that I was about to fly into one of the most dangerous pieces of airspace in the world, or so many would have me believe. I was about to enter the Devil's Triangle, the limbo of the lost, 
the Twilight Zone, or the Hoodoo Sea, more commonly referred to as the Bermuda Triangle. Both the Miami Herald and Fate magazine had mentioned unusual disappearances in the Bermuda area, but the name was first coined in the February 1969 edition of the pulp magazine Argosy. Long before the myth of the Bermuda Triangle became popular, Bermuda had already earned a reputation as an enchanted island. It was nicknamed the Devil's Islands by early sea travellers, frightened by the calls of the Kahal birds and the squeals of wild pigs that could be heard on the shore. But perhaps the most damning tales were told by sailors terrified of shipwreck on Bermuda's treacherous stretch of reefs. The island's mystical reputation was perhaps immortalised in Shakespeare's The Tempest, a tale of shipwreck and sorcery in The Still-Vexed Bermuths. The early origin of the Triangle myth stretches as far back as Columbus, who noted in his logbook a haywire compass, strange lights and a burst of flame falling into the sea. Columbus, as well as other seamen after him, also encountered a harrowing stretch of ocean, now known as the Sargasso Sea. Ancient tales talk of sailboats stranded forever in a windless expanse of water, surrounded by seaweed and the remnants of other unfortunate vessels. The Triangle is a loosely defined area that stretches between Bermuda, the southern tip of the Florida Panhandle, and Puerto Rico, although some writers wishing to inflate its importance by including more distant incidents have claimed it reaches out all the way to the Irish coast. The Triangle covers between 500,000 to one and a half million square miles, depending on what events its proponents wish to include. Its early history, of course, dealt mainly with ships lost at sea. One of the most notorious was the mystery of the Mary Celeste, a merchantman carrying a cargo of alcohol that left Hoboken, New Jersey, in October 1872. It was discovered some six weeks later, still under sail, and when boarded it was found deserted. The cargo was more or less intact, the rigging in poor condition, and there was three and a half feet of water in the bilge, but all in all it was seaworthy. However, the ship's boat was missing. But since this is a plain tale and not a ship story, I won't go into all the details of this unexplained abandonment, other than to mention that the Mary Celeste is regularly cited as a victim of the Bermuda Triangle, except that it was found on the wrong side of the Atlantic Ocean, halfway between the Exors and Portugal, and hadn't been anywhere near the fabled terrifying territory of tragedy. Boats aside, I'm actually going to talk aircraft, and of course the famous loss of Flight 19, a formation of five Grumand TBF Avengers, which went down on December the 5th, 1945, in the Bermuda Triangle. 
This tragic occurrence, which happened shortly after the end of the Second World War, killed all 14 pilots, bombardiers and gunners involved, plus the 13 crewmen on board a Martin PBM flying boat that was subsequently launched to search for them. Flight 19 was on a routine navigation and combat training exercise called Navigation Problem Number 1. The flight leader had some 2,500 hours of experience, whilst the student pilots following him had only 300 hours each. Navigation Problem Number 1 was an exercise in dead reckoning, in that it took place without reference necessarily to features on the ground and was conducted over the ocean using a stopwatch and compass. The aim was to get airborne from Fort Lauderdale and fly east for 50 minutes, bomb the hen and chicken shoals, and then fly north for 70 miles before turning left onto a heading of 240 degrees and fly the 120 miles back to their starting point. The flight leader was supervising the mission, and a trainee was leading the formation from the front. Radio calls heard by other aircraft confirmed that the formation completed its first leg and practiced bombing satisfactorily. It was on the next leg that the problem appears to have occurred when the student leading transmitted, I don't know where we are. We must have got lost after that last turn. Others in the formation gave suggestions, and another aircraft called the flight leader, who replied saying, Both of my compasses are out, and I'm trying to find Fort Lauderdale, Florida. I'm over land, but it's broken. I am sure I'm in the Keys, but I don't know how far down, and I don't know how to get to Fort Lauderdale. Aircraft listening out advised the naval air station of the problem and suggested that they triangulate a position from the leader's transponder. Then a call came stating, We're heading 030 degrees for 45 minutes, then we will fly north to make sure we are not over the Gulf of Mexico. Then someone in the formation said, Damn it, if we could just fly west, we would get home. Head west, damn it. Subsequent examination of the triangulation plot put the formation well north of where they should have been and more than a hundred miles out over the Atlantic. The leader radioed again. We'll fly 270 degrees west until landfall or running out of gas. A while later, he called. Holding 270, we didn't fly far enough east. We may as well just turn around and fly east again. Finally, he called his formation with the chilling transmission. All planes close up tight. We'll have to ditch unless landfall. When the first plane drops below 10 gallons, we all go down together. When it was obvious that the formation had ditched, a PBM mariner took off to search for them. But later that evening, a ship reported flames from what appeared to be an explosion and although they made a search through a pool of oil and aviation gasoline, no survivors were found. The Navy investigation produced a 500-page report of the incident, which stated that the leader mistakenly believed that small islands he passed over were the Florida Keys, that his flight was over the Gulf of Mexico, and that heading northeast would take them to Florida.
It was determined that he had actually passed over the Bahamas as scheduled, and he did in fact lead his flight to the northeast out over the Atlantic. The report noted that some subordinate officers did likely know their approximate position, as indicated by radio transmissions, stating that flying west would result in reaching the mainland, but they continued to follow their instructor. The flight leader had only recently moved to Miami following a tour in the Pacific Theater, and it was believed that he misidentified the Grand Bahamas for another island, leading him to believe that both his compasses had failed. He set what he now believed to be a southwest course towards Fort Lauderdale, but was actually heading northwest out over the ocean. Confusion, misidentification and multiple heading changes followed until, completely spatially disorientated, he ran his flight out of fuel and ditched. The loss of the searching Mariner, an aircraft so notoriously accident-prone that they were nicknamed flying gas tanks, was put down to an ignition of gasoline vapours in its bilges, which destroyed it in mid-air. The loss of both the Mariner and the Avengers was far from uncommon. Records show that training accidents between 1942 and 1945 accounted for the loss of 95 aviation personnel from Naval Air Station Fort Lauderdale. Far from being unique and unusual, Flight 19's loss was merely one of many. These weren't, of course, the only unexplained aviation losses to occur. Back in 1881, Walter Powell went missing in his hydrogen balloon, Saladin, and no trace of him or his balloon was ever found. 1889 saw Edward Hogan disappear into thin air whilst flying a Campbell dirigicycle. He was never seen again. In 1927, the Dallas Spirit, also known as the Swallow Monoplane, vanished during an air race and the crew, William Irwin and Alvin Eichwald, were again never seen again. 1934 saw the completely unexplained disappearance of an airspeed envoy, flown by Charles Ulm, along with G. Littlejohn and J. Skilling. The famous Charles Kingford Smith, an immensely experienced pilot, and John Pethybridge, in a Lockheed Altair named the Lady Southern Cross, crashed in mysterious circumstances and were never found. 1938 saw the loss of an Avro Anson of 233 Squadron, and all four occupants were never seen again. It was in August 1945 that a Mitsubishi A6M0, piloted by Shiro Kawamoto, made an intriguing final radio call. Something is happening in the sky. The sky is opening up. Neither he nor his aircraft were ever found, nor has there been any explanation for the radio call or the disappearance. A Douglas D-54D Skymaster, carrying 44 people, disappeared in 1950 and despite one of the largest rescue efforts ever carried out by the US military, absolutely no trace of the aircraft 
nor the occupants were found. This particular loss represents one of the largest groups of American military personnel to ever go missing, and yet there is absolutely no explanation. Of note, two Douglas C-47 Skytrains which were both participating in the search for the Skymaster, also crashed. Moving on, for no apparent reason, a Learjet 35A disappeared without trace in 1983, and an Antonov AN-32 took off never to be seen again in 1986. The list goes on, with a Boeing 727 vanishing in 2003 and an Embraer 720C with eight on board in 2018 meeting the same fate. A casual count indicates that at least 142 aircraft of one type or another from crude aerostats and flimsy early aircraft to big airliners carrying many passengers have disappeared in flight for reasons that have never been definitely determined and meet the ICAO definition of missing, that is, when the official search has been terminated and the wreckage has not been located. As far as this tale goes, the important part of this list which is probably only the tip of the iceberg, is that none of these mysteries that I have just mentioned occurred anywhere near the Bermuda Triangle. Indeed, according to the insurers Lloyds of London and the US Coast Guard, the percentage that go missing in the Bermuda Triangle is the same as anywhere in the world. In 1997, a Lloyd spokesman backed up their statement by adding that insurance premiums for voyages through the Bermuda Triangle were no higher than for any other routine sea journey. Triangle believers have used a number of supernatural concepts to explain the events that have occurred. One such explanation pins the blame on leftover technology from the mythical lost continent of Atlantis, such as the great Atlantean fire crystals that once provided so much of the tremendous power and energy that the city possessed. Apparently, from time to time, the force field emitted by these damaged crystals becomes very powerful, and any plane or ship coming within the influence of this force field disintegrates and is transformed into pure energy. Other writers attribute the events to UFOs. Authors of various books on anomalous phenomena list several theories attributing losses in the triangle to anomalous or unexplained forces, calling it the world's greatest mystery. In search of answers to a non-existent question, one author dares to consider such possible explanations as undersea bases established by extraterrestrial abductors, time warps that send hapless craft to other dimensions, and electronic fogs associated with something called the Hutchison effect. An almost believable pseudo-scientific explanation was that explosive releases of methane gas from the seabed could sink ships. The only problem being that the most recent naturally occurring hydrate gas blowout off the southeastern United States 
probably occurred at the end of the glacial episode about 15,000 years ago or more. It's unlikely that aircraft would be affected and even an A320 can survive Captain Al's methane blowouts. By the way, I would just like to warn you that according to the Mesoamerican Long Count Calendar, the end date of the calendar's 5,126-year cycle heralded a cataclysmic event that has been interpreted as either a supermassive black hole in the centre of the galaxy which would result in the destruction of the Earth, or a collision with the mythical planet Nibiru, which would also result in the destruction of the Earth. When converted to the Gregorian calendar, the date came out as the 21st of December 2012. So, be careful out there. We're living on borrowed time. Rump reader? Yeah, sounds like a good job. <laughs> sure That's what I could. took away from all that. <laughs> I'm not sure you could. No, no stop listening after that. that was... Not a good job for social distancing, though. <laughs> I learned a lot from that one. Learned a lot. Uh, <laughs> um, lots of worries. <laughs> no, that was a, that was a lovely one, Nick. And I tell you, I mean, I uh, flying through that airspace for so many years, you know, north, south, east, west, and it it always, you know, it, it, I'll I'll confess, it always crossed my mind. You know, what's there any truth to any of this? But, yeah, uh, if I go down now, I'll just be adding to the myth. <laughs> I uh, I crashed there once. Only once. That was in an earlier life. <laughs> You'd know there that you if go. you were a rump reader. <laughs> yeah. Yes, we could probably see your reincarnation from there. I don't know. I've, I've braved it by land or by air and by sea. So and you've made still, it. still I've, around to tell the tale of it. I've I've actually been under the sea. I've Ooh, actually dove ah. the Mary Celeste in Bermuda. Oh, nice. Very nice. And I even came back. Is that where the ship ended up? Yes. All right. Okay. Very good. Double check myself because it's been a lot of years, but I'm almost 100%. So you've been under the triangle. I've been under the triangle. Oh, did you see the Atlantean uh, fire crystals? (laughs) (laughs) That are supposed to be. I don't think he was looking. You have to actually be looking for that to see them. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> Only the rump readers can see that. <laughs> By the way, that Carl Sagan's dragon. Have you heard that that story? No. It, it's it's his effort to because he's a, he's a actually very clear thinking man to um, uh, present the same things that pseudoscientists do by saying I have an invisible fire breathing dragon that lives in my garage. Uh, but only I can see it, and only I know it breathes fire. And there's absolutely no way to disprove that he <laughs> I has. I dare you to disprove a, it. Exactly right. Uh, <laughs> an invisible fire-breathing dragon in his garage. So uh, it, it's it's the same with a lot of pseudoscience. Well, as long as sign in his pants, we'll be fine. <laughs> good, good point. That's what she said. All right. Uh, thank you, uh, Captain Nick. Another great one. Oh, All right. Thanks. It was a sort of a first of April one. Oh. Ah. I liked it. It was good. I see what you good. did there. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, 
let's see, received this, um, and this is kind of, um, you know, for the current times, um, sissy wrote in and she said, help (laughs) my son is stuck in his career. This is number nine. Hi, Captain Jeff and crew. I'm writing to see if I can get Captain Jeff to talk to my son about taking the next step in his pilot career or, and what it was like for Captain Jeff. It was horrible. My son's name is Mike and he's 29 years old and currently has his private pilot license with 150 hours. He listens to your podcast all the time. He wants to take the next step to become a commercial pilot, but he is scared. He won't be able to get a job to pay back the loan uh, that he'd need. I've tried to motivate him, but I'm afraid I'm out of my league. He has the opportunity to get $40,000 with a zero interest rate, but would have to pay it back in three years. He's afraid that he wouldn't be able to pay it back in that three-year period and tells me that pilots are just not getting jobs or they're not paid very well. And right now, of course, there's the coronavirus. So it's really been tough. And I'm having a hard time keeping my son motivated. And then she asked if there were pilot career counselors and such. And uh, so basically, I told her, I wrote her back and said, you know, we really can't, you know, do individual phone counseling. Uh, but uh, there probably are some places out there where you can kind of find that thing. I'm sure that there are people that offer those ki- types of services. But uh, but we, I, I promised her that we would talk about this on the show, and I, I basically told her that, um, you know, we um, I understand the, the fear, trepidation about moving forward uh, in, in his journey and everybody else listening to us who have the same kind of, you know, everything was going great. This is never, there's never been a better time. <laughs> We've talked about that so many times on this show, never been a better time to become a, an airline pilot or a professional pilot or do something in the aviation industry because it was just going by like gangbusters. But we always kind of threw the, that little caveat in there, unless something, you know, tragic happens like nine eleven or something that, you know, is beyond our control. And we always try to throw that in there just to say, Hey, there's a possibility that, you know, there could be a bump in the road for all of us. And, um, turns out, guess what? This worldwide pandemic, um, has happened. It is the big bump in the road. And I told her that, you know, uh, everybody is suffering. Um, and it, because this is just unprecedented, uh, even, Folks like myself uh, have been in the aviation industry for decades are feeling a bit shaken by this. And I said, if we had a crystal ball, we could state with certainty that everything was going to be just fine, but we can't. Uh, Maybe the industry will be stronger than it's ever been. Maybe it will struggle for years. We just don't know. I don't think, does anybody on the crew have a crystal ball that can tell us exactly what's going to happen here? No, just yeah. this. Oh, yeah, just have globe. that globe. Yeah, have no, you tried? I, it? I've got a rump. <laughs> well, yes, we don't want to. So see you're it. volunteering oh, okay. to? Oh, I'm not going to go there. Good um, idea. Anyway, um, and I also mentioned the fact that uh, we, you know, before all of this and the social distancing, we like to uh, hold meetups here and there around the uh, country and around the world, actually. And uh, that would be a chance for people listening to the show if they had questions and like a one-on-one kind of thing um, would be perfect for them uh, to do it. Um, one of our meetups, if we happen to be in their their area or their town, but uh, again, because of this COVID nineteen thing, uh, we're not going to have any the uh, kind of meetup like that in a while, most likely. So, anyway, crew, um, do you think uh, do you have any? 
words of wisdom or words of real quick let's start with a suggestion from the chat room yeah um brian parrott says yeah uh carl valeri from the aviation careers podcast does aviation career counseling and he's used his services a few times okay says he's awesome so there's a you'll you'll notice that there's a link to that in uh in my notes right below uh yep okay so uh that's a good thing um as someone who uh got slightly in trouble one time for for telling someone in a professional setting that I did not have a crystal ball to look into the future to predict things. I'll refrain from doing that this time around. Um, <laughs> what didn't turn out well, huh? No, no. Uh, okay. <laughs> I mean, I was using it as an analogy and someone yeah. thought I was being insincere. So oh. I was not. I was just, you know, when someone's pressing you a lot and you're trying to say, look, I just don't know. Sometimes you just yeah. need a way to, to make that point a little bit more clearly. Right. Um, the crystal ball analogy was apparently not that in that scenario. Oh, I remember um, the story now. You, I remember you telling it. <laughs> I think I have so that. now, so now you actually have a crystal ball. Yes. yes. So, so what I, actually, actually I do, it's right here. Exactly. So what I, you know, I'll start with this. So, you know, $40,000 is not a small sum of money. Um, However, I think this is one of those things where everyone's situation is individual, right? So still relatively young, 29 years old. That's that's certainly not too old. We've talked about that before to get into a flying career. Um, Having a zero interest rate is is awesome. But I'd sit down and I'd really think about the financial uh, impacts of that. If you have a chance to find a financial counselor, that might be a good idea as well. Just because you want to know how that fits into your individual situation. Everyone comes from different financial backgrounds. you know, we've talked about ways in the past to uh, to earn money on the side while you're going through flight training. For some people, that's an option. For some people, it's not. If you're able to do that, you can either take the loan and, and work when you can and pay towards it, um, or you can you know take less of a loan and and make money on the side if you're if you're able to do that. Uh, it just really it really depends. And and if it's a this is the the bottom line for me. We've said this before. If it's something that is your passion, it's what you want to do, It's you can't think of doing any other job career in the world where there's a will, there's a way to get it done. So um, I wouldn't let coronavirus be the thing that stops you in this moment. It might be a temporary setback, um, or I think we're all hoping and, and thinking that this is just a temporary setback and things will be uh, back to normal at some point, hopefully in the not too distant future once we're on the other side of all of this. Absolutely. I agree with you, Steffi, 100% there. Uh, like you said, 40 grand is not an insignificant amount of money. And you break it down, it's you know north of $13,000 you'd have to pay back every year. Uh, mm-hmm. the fact that there's no interest. It's good. Um, and uh, I mean, what, what can I tell you? you like you said, you kind of have to put things in the balance there. You know, uh, Analyze the risk and the benefit, um, and like you said, if it's something that you, if it's something that you really want to do, something that you see yourself doing, nothing else that you'd rather do, then of course take the plunge. Mm-hmm. But but you have to you have to consider other factors as well. It's really and 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 I wish I could give a you know a, a defined black white answer, but it's 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 more complicated than that. You know, yeah. especially especially I, now. It, you know, it's nice to be able to say, yeah, you know, we've we've all kind of taken that plunge and emerged on the other side of things that are potentially kind of risky or financially involved and, and we've all done well, but there's there's certainly no guarantees on those things. Um, I think uh, in my case in particular, I was just very <laughs> kind of, you know, foolish, young optimism where I was like, nope, this is the path I'm going. And I just launched right into it and didn't give it a second thought. Um, that was, you know, 20 years ago. Would I do that? now but things are things are different so um 
you have to take all of that into account what your current situation is in, in life. Yeah, exactly right. And, and you know, a, a point should be made. Uh, I'll, I'll let you go, Dana, in a second. Uh, that um, it where when it, uh, while it used to be very true that getting on um, with a regional airline was very very little money. Many of these regionals have really gone out of their way to make sure that uh, the first year pay even is and they're giving bonuses and everything else are uh, it's much it's a much better environment now than it was just a couple of years ago. So. Uh, as far as the the financial aspect of paying back a loan like that, I know that can be daunting. But um, you know, we don't know your personal situation. We don't know, you know, it, with the backing of mom and dad, if that's like a, a a safety net that you might have when others might not, or maybe you don't. So it's it's just uh, so many variables here. We can't really give you a, a an answer. But um, and I'll I have a couple in addition to the Aviation Careers podcast. Uh, link in the show notes. I also have I found a, a magazine, an online magazine called Aero Crew News, that has a lot of information about uh, people that are wanting to get into this industry, as well as kitdarby.com. He's the guy that way back when I was uh, looking at information for the uh, airlines when I was still in the Air Force back in the eighties had something called FAPA, the Future Airline Pilots Association. I think then they changed it to Fu- Future Airline Professionals Association. Uh, and they put out this magazine, and you know, I've talked about it before on previous episodes. Um, but he's still he's still going strong. He's down in Petrie City, and he has this uh, whole career development um, um, company. So that's another place to to check out. And Dana, now you're you're on. You know, I'm reading this uh, sissy, and uh, on behalf of Mike, and I see that there is one pathway that this is that this is going down all right so he has an opportunity for for the forty thousand dollar loan as you know has already been uh mentioned that's a lot of money however there are other opportunities out there so it really comes down to how dedicated and how much he really wants it just this one loan uh might be a teaser right or you could you know he if he would go after the loan if after three years, 0%, he can't pay back that much and he takes a bit of a chunk out of it. There's always a possibility of refinancing or, you know, getting a personal loan, which at that point would be far less daunting as far as the amount of money um, that would have to be paid out because by the time you get to the three years, you've now uh, hit that loan uh, with interest-free money added. So the interest would be much lower. But in, in my my thought process here, I think he he needs a little more uh, motivation. There are new opportunities out there, despite the coronavirus, such as ab initio programs. Um, if he has college education, that will be certainly uh, a, a step up uh, into the uh, other options that are out there. You know, I've mentioned it before, all ATPs, it's expensive. They do finance, but, you know, you're looking almost at a guaranteed interview. Um, and some of these other... Um, Flight Academies, like we mentioned, that the photograph from earlier was with uh, Indianapolis. Um, yeah, Lyft, L-I-F-T. But, yeah, so, you know, there are lots of options out there. It just it doesn't have to be this one option. Mm-hmm. But, it, you know, Mike has to get out there, and if, if he's really motivated, make it happen. That's what I did. I mean, seriously, yeah. I, I had a lot of doors closed on me, a lot of opportunities, a lot of dis- discouragement, um, and uh, look where I'm sitting now, so. Yeah. That's all I can say. 
I think I can safely say that all of us here on the crew had that attitude. This is what we want to do, and we're going for it, gosh darn it, regardless of the circumstance. So, Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, may I point out there's often very good resources in uh, pilots' unions, uh, and they're often very well geared up uh, to assisting pilots in getting into careers. Uh, I know the British Airline Pilots Association uh, have a lot of um, assistance on their websites uh, and more practical information as well. And, of course, ALPA, uh, the uh, American Airline Pilots or the Airline Pilots Association, um, where has the same, uh, you know. Uh, so if you haven't taken a look or considered seeking advice there, that would be one I would recommend. Very good point. What's ALPA stand for again? Airline Pilots Association. There you go. Yeah, I think you got it. Doesn't have America in it. No. 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 And it's called uh, Cleared to Dream, which is great. Cleared to Dream. I like dreaming. <laughs> well, you're so dreamy. <laughs> <laughs> Are you meant to make dreamy? <laughs> Look dreamy, yes. All right. Well, I, I hope guess. I hope that helped, Sissy and Mike. Um, and uh, just keep listening and, um, you know, keep motivated and let us know, you know, keep us uh, apprised to uh, your, your journey. I'd like to, we'd like to hear it. Hey, Jeff, can I just put something in here for a second? Please do. Uh, I did mention that I did dive the Mary Celeste in yes. Bermuda. Mm -hmm. It's actually a 19, it's I mean 1864 uh, steamer. Oh. Battle steamer, Civil War blockade. So it was actually the original name was the Mary Celestia, aka Mary Celeste. So oh. the original ship that uh, Nick was talking about uh, is a different ship, uh, albeit the same name. name. Okay. So just so, want to be at the fifty percent down. Okay. Yeah. There's the bell. The fifty percent bell. We got it. All right. So let's see. If we can keep it there till the to the rest for the rest of the show. Hi, folks. <laughs> <laughs> Not a lot of confidence from Dr. Steph. Okay. Uh, let's see. Carter, um, <laughs> well, you know, the uh, you did a couple of recent uh, plane tales, Nick, about air refueling. Uh, very oh, interesting yes. stuff. Well, Carter sent us in a very interesting uh, story of his own regarding air refueling. You want to hear it? Yeah. Let's mm -hmm. hear it. Hello, APG crew. This is Carter. And recently, your episodes talked about air-to-air -air refueling with the probe and drogue system. Nick did an outstanding job of describing how the whole thing works, and I believe that our Navy copied what the British had originally developed. I'd like to pass along an interesting refueling story that you probably aren't aware of. I had the good fortune to fly the Navy's A-6 intruder, and the typical intruder squadron back in the 1980s also included a couple of Ka-6 tankers, which were all bombers that had been converted into tankers due to their old age, and the associated G-limit restrictions. So typically, it was very easy for us to maintain our currency in air-to-air -air refueling. In our air wing at the time, we could take gas from other A6s or even A7 Corsairs. And typically, every other day or so, each pilot was given a tanker assignment for the air wing, so we would give away gas to the A7s and also to the F4 Phantoms. One summer, it was decided by the powers that be that we should practice low-level air-to-air refueling. This was considered to have great tactical advantage, and it's something we all had to get qualified with. When it was described to us, I thought somebody was kidding me. 
So let me describe this operation for you for just a moment. It basically means flying low to the ground at less than 500 feet AGL and 250 knots or more indicated across a pretty flat landscape such as the northern Nevada desert north of Fallon in the middle of a July day where the desert temperatures were probably well over 100 degrees Fahrenheit. When I first heard about this, I thought this probably would be impossible, if not very difficult, to do simply because the probe and drogue system was never designed to operate in such environmental conditions. Now, all of you have seen the Air Force KC-135 videos where the receiving aircraft pulls up behind the tanker at 28,000 or flight level 280. And everything is pretty calm and collected, and the boom driver takes his time to insert the probe in the receiving aircraft receptacle. <clears throat> now imagine the chaos that was the Navy's plan. As those of us who have flown formation on a hot desert summer day, it's tough enough to stay in place as a wingman, let alone trying to get gas from a tanker. Now, my new job is to fly underneath the A6 tanker, who is roughly established at 400-500 feet AGL above the ground, and that ground is whizzing by like a blur. The drogue is dancing around like a hip-hop artist on crack. It doesn't have any particular constant cycle of confusion. It doesn't have any particular, particularly constant cycle of confusion. It goes left, it goes up, it goes right, it goes down, and typically the gyrations can be up to six feet in one way or another. I think what best describes this evolution is air-to-air -air refueling in the middle of a thunderstorm. About now I was thinking, why didn't I choose the Air Force? I know that the Air Force was so risk-adverse that they would never even consider this type of operation. Imagine a KC-10 flying at 400 feet above ground level with a couple of F-15s plugged in. That'll never happen. So the A-6 tanker extended the drogue and I was cleared in to take on some fuel. The first thing that became apparent was not the movement of the basket, but the closest, closeness of the earth beneath me. I felt like I was flying at about 100 feet above the ground. I realized that I had to disregard this effect and concentrate on trying to plug in and take on some fuel, while the drogue continued to dance in front of me. As I neared the drogue, my first plan was to attempt, was to, attempt to intercept the basket or drogue at a spot that was about halfway across its, its up and down arc. This plan, although well thought out, was a disaster. The drogue came crashing down upon my, randa, uh, my radome, bouncing off only to fly up and smite my windscreen with a loud crack, warning me that, what are you doing? I quickly idled back out of harm's way and tried to think of another plan. My jet didn't appear to withstand any damage, so I thought about my next options. Of course, my bombardier navigator was adding his comments in a nonstop banner, such as, what the hell are we doing here, and this is nuts, etc. But then I noticed for a few seconds, and only a few seconds, the basket would stabilize in between bouts of turbulence. Could this be the solution? One thing I haven't mentioned was, in addition to trying to get fuel, I was also trying not to hit the tanker and all this, because both airplanes are moving up and down, and, all, and not always together. So I watched the basket for a minute or two more and realized that there were periods where the basket was sort of stable, but really no more than two or three seconds. And if you're lucky, you got five seconds. So I dropped back into position and waited 
and planned my move so that as soon as the basket stabilized, I'd gun the engines and hit it hard. On my first attempt, I hesitated just a little too long, and as soon as I was about to hit the basket, the basket flew up and hit the probe on my airplane, circled around it a couple of times, and then it flew off into space again. Again, I quite quickly throttled back and backed away from the tanker. I moved back into position for another try, and I realized that I would have to be clairvoyant and that I would have to attempt to guess when the basket would stabilize. It probably would happen after a particularly bad bout of turbulence. So again, just as I thought that the basket was starting to stabilize, I gunned the engine, engines, went forward, and connected with the basket. PFM, or a lot of luck. Stayed plugged in for about 20 seconds and realized that I could take on fuel and uh, then I decided that it was time to back out and go have a drink at the bar. Later on at the bar, <clears throat> all the pilots in my squadron that had been doing that evolution that day shared the same sentiments about this operation. And we all agreed that this was not something that we wanted to do on a regular basis. I think we even tried to do it once more and then we gave up on it. It was just too difficult. And these were aviators that had practiced this basically weekly for years. We were very seasoned at air-to-air -air refueling, both with Air Force tankers and Navy tankers. So that's my interesting story. I thought you might want to share it with your listeners. And it's one that you probably have never heard because we don't really do any of it. It's just too dangerous an evolution. Thank you very much for all you do. It's a great podcast. Love listening to it. Have a good day, guys. Again, that was Carter Boswell. And uh, wow. I mean, first of all, just being a Navy pilot, that's scary. Um, yeah, yeah they, they are scary. <laughs> and, the, and flying the intruder, uh, all weather, low level, that's crazy. And and then this, this story, I mean, thinking, wow, really? <laughs> that's crazy. Well, I, I love I love it. I really do. I've got a great admiration for intruder pilots. They did such a damn good job, uh, and uh, they did it so well. Uh, and it's very sadly, because of the environment they were put in, they took a lot of losses uh, when they were doing this for real. Um, and I, this is a fantastic story because I, I think we, those of us that have done air to air refueling with this system, uh, uh, every now and again, you do have a very difficult day and it's very hard to make contact and a uh, bit of a nightmare. Most of the time, it's, it's really easy. But it does bring to mind uh, the first time I went uh, and stayed uh, with a New Zealand squadron uh, in Ohakia in New Zealand. And they flew the uh, A4 Skyhawk. Uh, and they could do buddy-buddy refueling uh, with that so that one aircraft could carry the pod with the hose and the drogue and someone else were, could refuel from them. Uh, Great. Uh, they also, this one fast jet squadron they had uh, in uh, New Zealand, uh, they also had a small element of the uh, squadron were the formation uh, team for New Zealand. This was the New Zealand fast jet formation team. Uh, and their pièce de résistance, uh, when they were doing a display, which they did all summer, uh, was actually to um, fly uh, in a diamond Four, uh, 
And as they did about a 3G turn uh, onto the crowd line to run down the crowd line, uh, the leader would trail his hose and basket. And the number four, the position uh, right behind the leader, would in that 3G turn make contact uh, with and put his probe in the basket. And then they would barrel roll this whole formation at low level over the top of the uh, display. And wow. I, I've seen pictures of it. And I've also seen, you can you can look at it on YouTube, uh, these guys doing this trick. And, and I just always thought, you guys are bad. Uh, <laughs> it was true, they were all bad. But I always was just full of admiration Three for this particular G's. maneuver. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Uh, how they did it, and they with such skill and regularity, I do not know. Hmm. Very clever. Very impressive. Take that. Blue Angels, Red Arrows, <laughs> Exactly right. Yeah, the only formation in the team in the world, to my knowledge, that uh, used to do that as a regular hmm. part of their display. Wow. Very cool. Oops. That's amazing. Uh, I got to find the right mouse. Here we go. <laughs> <laughs> you got more than one mouse? I he has do. mice. I actually have oh. a trackpad and a mouse, and sometimes I try to do things with my trackpad that I really need to do with my mouse and vice versa. It's confusing, but I'm a confusing person. All right. Uh, thanks again, Carl. It's always great to hear people that listen to the show that have like this, this history, this experience, and, and so glad that you felt like sharing it with us, and we're so glad you did. Absolutely. Thanks. Yeah, absolutely. That was great. And that was funny. I was, it just made me think real quick before we move on. I saw a, a funny meme the other day about, uh, about the, uh, air force formation flying versus Navy formation flying and, uh, and social distancing saying how the, uh, <laughs> yes. uh yeah, how the, how the air force doesn't have that problem. <laughs> Thunderbirds are, uh, are safe. They're, no, they're there's good. no doubt about it. I think the blue angels are my favorite <laughs> formation team in the world. Oh, boy. Uh, like, ouch. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, Glenn Towers uh, and Ray Davis in the uh, chat room. They can both back up my story. Ray said he watched this uh, being done at uh, Richmond uh, Royal Australian Air Force Base back in 88. The Kiwis are obviously over there doing a display. And Glenn said he's seen them do a loop whilst plugged in. Wow. That's impressive. <laughs> Very. All right. Excellent. Let's move to 14. Um, some more uh, audio feedback, and um, this is from uh, APG community member John, and here we go. Hello, Jeff, Steph, Nick, Dana, and the light twin driver, Rick. It's John, a fellow Acme Giant pilot with Rick. I thought I would let people know what it's like for those of us working full speed doing the COVID-19 flying. In a word, it's weird. We are very busy, but the airways are not. It reminds me of flying after 9-11. So far, I've done two laps around the world in two weeks. Overnights are not much fun since we are often stuck in our rooms ordering food from room service or if delivery service. We have the extra challenge of figuring out what the local rules are in each city. Some of the hotels treat us like lepers and others treat us great. Most of us are being slam clickers as that is acceptable now. For those who aren't familiar with the term, it's normally reserved for those who blow up the crew after they get to the hotel. They get to their room, slam the door, and click the lock shut. This is generally considered bad form, but it is now more acceptable. Recently, I also had to forgo going home, even though I overnighted there, 
since I didn't want to take a chance of exposure to my family. That was hard. Hong Kong is one of our more normal places we go in terms of the city. It isn't busy, but you can go and sit down in a restaurant. All you have to do is ignore the temperature being taken before you enter. The nice part is that the airways are open. We don't have to listen to that company that's similar to Acme complaining about rides. No one is slowing us down either. There are the occasional surprises with the random ATC Zero events that have occurred. Luckily, I've been able to miss those. I do want to say that I've heard a few calls to stop passenger flying. That, in my opinion, would be a huge mistake. We depend on passenger airlines to get us into position. We regularly have to shift around to be there for the next flight since we don't fly hub and spoke routes. Hopefully this mess will blow over soon. Till then, the freight dogs will keep the proverbial rubber dog stuff moving around the planet. That's all for now. Take care, everybody. Ah, uh, do you recognize that voice, uh, Rick? Oh, absolutely. That's uh, that's uh, John Jester. Uh huh. Great guy. Absolutely great guy. Yeah, he is. I've I've met him on at least one occasion. I think we um, Armando's retirement uh, ceremony. Mm-hmm. I guess he's a he's a really good friend of Armando's, and he yep. was there as well. So we got to share a beer or two uh, while yeah. while I was down there. I've actually done uh, recurrent training with him uh, a couple of years ago. Uh, Doing crosswind landings and stuff is a it was a good time with him, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it's a shame that uh, you know you, you heard him mention that uh, he had a an overnight where he lives, but he didn't want to expose his family because you know he didn't know whether or not you know he was uh, infected or exposed or whatever or carrying the the virus asymptomatically. No, I tell you, last time I flew was uh, January 24th, so I haven't been out on the road since this whole thing happened. So it's going to be interesting to see how. Uh, how it all uh, looks now, you know, post uh, post this mess. But um, yeah, absolutely, we we depend on on passenger carriers to you know getting us from A to B. Because as John said, we don't fly hub and spoke, and oftentimes we have to fly halfway around the world on a commercial airliner to get us into position. And, and some, you know, and eight times out of ten, people don't here in the states don't live in Bay. So, uh, so for me, for example, I need to get from Phoenix to Cincinnati on a commercial airliner. Um, so it's going to be interesting to see how that uh, how that works out. But uh, as he said, I don't know, hopefully this will this will blow over soon and we'll go back to normalcy. Yeah. Well, stay safe out there, John. I met John too. Great guy. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Um, getting close to the end here. I'm just trying to pick, uh, one or two more. Um, let's read this one, uh, 12 from Chris. He says, hi, APG gang. I really enjoy your podcasts and the chemistry within the group is fun to hear. Have you thought of telling the listeners about something small, but great that your crews have done in the past could be years ago or something you witnessed one day and carried on into your working career and life. I'm sure all of you have great have some great positive stories, even just small tidbits that made you feel great about your crew and yourself. They don't have to be a big deal, uh, even just small, subtle things the crew did that made everyone's life easier or more enjoyable. Passing those ideas on to future pilots and everyone would be great for use in their careers, regular life, careers and regular life, I guess. Keep up the great podcasts. And this is uh, from Chris Eidsvik. In Mount Washington, B.C., Canada. Oh, he's a Canadian. I shouldn't have read that. Darn it. Liz snuck it in there. Yeah, she did. 
<laughs> Just kidding. Uh, anybody have um, anything that uh, fits the description there from uh, Chris? Well, I'd know. Um, you know, it's always hard when you're working on times when everyone else is having a holiday, whether it be Christmas, Easter, uh, your birthday, or whatever. And if ever I knew that we were going to be operating on one of those uh, magic days where people would normally be at home, I would always try and do something for the crew. And generally speaking, I would just buy an Easter egg or a little Christmas gift, one for each member of the crew. And uh, we'd have a little, you know, thanks very much indeed for, you know, working on this day. Yeah, you know, it's great to have uh, the crew all working together and we're sorry you're missing your family today, but this will, you know, perhaps make up for it a bit. And you didn't have to spend a lot of money, but just making that little effort, I uh, think used to help uh, the crew to work together and enjoy themselves, uh, despite the uh, you know the fact that they weren't at home. Yeah, I find that the little things like that yeah. are uh, go a long way, a big way, because it just shows that you thought about other people. Yeah, that's, exactly. It's, that's exactly where I was going with that one, Nixter. That was that was that was gonna I was gonna say the exact same thing. You know, mm -hmm. just uh, and like you said, it doesn't have to be anything big, but the fact that you took a second to think about that and recognize that, it just changes things completely. Yeah, much easier in a cargo crew. Like there's four of you. I used to have to go. All right, we got. Got three pilots, sixteen cabin crew, a beautician. Uh, <laughs> right, <laughs> beautician. Wow. Oh, we used to have a beautician on board that used to give massages and uh, you know, oh man, and do do the latest nails. This is an April Fool's uh, <laughs> carryover. No, no it's true, actually. Yeah, it is yeah. true. Oh, wow. I, I mean, this is very recent, especially with everything that's going on nowadays, and in, in the complete. Uh, mess that we have uh, with scheduling and, and trying to figure everything out and crews all over the place. Um, I've actually come across where, uh, and this is very recent, uh, I've had two uh, situations where crew members were deadheading on my aircraft. Um, and uh, both times, the uh, I was flying the aircraft up to the destination. Uh, one time it was a five-hour sit in, in Buffalo. Another one was a, a fairly quick turnaround recently going to Rochester. And talking to the other crew members, discovered that what was happening is that I was flying, my, my crew was flying to the destination. The other crew members were then going to take our seats and then go ahead and fly back while we deadheaded in the back of the airplane. <laughs> yeah. So I just said, you know, let's call scheduling and tell them that I'm more than happy to go ahead and do the flying and you guys just go home. So little things like that uh, during the, these very difficult times uh, can certainly uh, cheer up the other, other crew member um, in showing that we're, we're forward thinking and trying to, you know, help out and also not, uh, you know, do anything excessive uh, in, in, in the flying. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. I, you know, this is actually, um, not much to do with, uh, well, relevant to your, your uh, feedback, Chris, but um, with everything that's going on, the team I run with and do racing with, um, uh, one of the coaches put out a challenge for us to think about areas in our lives we wanted to work on and improve on. And this is actually something that I've been trying to do a better job of because how difficult is it for me to stop and grab, you know, bagels or coffee or donuts or something for the folks who are coming into 
to work right now. Um, you know, and I've done this in the past, but I'm generally not the greatest at either a remembering to do it or B um, I've overslept a little bit and I'm running late myself and I need to just get to the office. What? <laughs> I mean, I'm always on time, but sometimes it, it, you know, makes it difficult to those good intentions you had the night before of like, I'm going to pick up coffee for everyone. It's like, I don't have time <laughs> to get coffee for everyone. Um, you know, or, or just offering to, to pick up the tab for lunch or things like that. Um, those are easy things to, to do. Um, when, if you're able to, and, and when you have the time to do it. Um, but something I did this week for, for a few of the ladies that I work with in the office, um, we've been having to wear, um, just regular surgical masks all the time now being forward facing to, to patients. Um, that's the new recommendation came out early this week or last week. I forget which, which day. Um, but we quickly found out that the construction of said surgical masks and the way that the ear loops fit over the back of your ears are very uncomfortable very quickly. Um, I was kind of used to wearing them for short bouts doing procedures, no more than like five or 10 minutes at a time. And then you take it off and it's off for 10 or 15 minutes and you don't get that same effect. Um, I had seen online um, folks just um, being kind of creative and how to mitigate that a little bit. And one of the ideas was take a headband and sew some buttons onto the side. So instead of uh, looping the uh, ear loops around your ears, you loop the the loops onto the buttons because they sit it right in the same, same area there. So I was like, well, oh. I can, I'm smart. I can figure out how to sew a button on a, a headband. So I watched a YouTube video <laughs> <laughs> yeah. on how to sew you a button on a shirt. sewing YouTube video. I, I never took home ec, right? plumber. <laughs> I work with needles, but not sewing so much. Uh, not, I'm not a surgeon. Um, so I, the first one, it took me about, mm, I don't want to say how long it took me to sew a button onto a, just one button onto one side of the headband. It was like 30 minutes of trying to figure it out and do it correctly. And the first time I didn't have enough thread, even though I used as much as they said I should. And it was too short. Not enough. <laughs> Not enough. Um, so, but I, I figured out, kind of worked out the kinks and I, I went in with that and everyone went, like, wow, that's really a good idea. And I said, well, I've got this, I don't know why I've saved all these buttons, like extra buttons from shirts and things over the years. Like, I've got this big selection of mismatched buttons that I've got nothing else to do with. So just if you've got a headband, you want me to sew some buttons on too, just bring it in. And today I spent an extra hour or so at work just sewing and I've gotten much faster. Now it's about <laughs> five minutes per button. Oh, nice. <laughs> it takes me. Yeah. So a couple of those today, but yeah, that's a little something that'll hopefully go a long way for, for folks right now. Absolutely. Very cool. All right. Well, Looks like it's that time, unfortunately, for us to bid everybody adieu um, because uh, it's probably around the three-hour point, maybe a little bit more. Um, but I just have to say it's always such um, – I look forward to this so much every week, uh, meeting up with the crew itself and also our a wonderful live um, chat room folks that uh, are – you know, this mostly the same people every week. And, uh, it's, it's great to see everybody in this way and, you know, not in person, but it's the best we can do. And, and it, it's great, I think. Um, so, uh, everybody, uh, just keep hanging in there and, uh, keep, you know, keep strong, keep aviation strong. And, uh, Oh, um, just quickly before we go, I, I almost forgot. I, um, you know, we have the, um, on the uh, website, we have a lot of different things like learning about the crew. By the way, I still need to uh, update uh, uh, Captain Rick's, Miami Rick's um, 
little bio on the APG crew portion of the uh, website. Uh, but you can learn about the community and um, there's the calendar there. We talked about that earlier on the show, uh, a plain tales uh, page where you can get more information. Uh, Nick goes back in and in addition to all the wonderful stuff that he talks about on the audio, he also uh, adds more text and uh, pictures and such on the, um, on the plain tales uh, page for each episode. So check that out, please. We have an, uh, <clears throat> the APG library where uh, Tiffany is our librarian and she uh, keeps track of all the great book suggestions, suggestions that people have. Um, and we also have a merchandise uh, place where you can buy t-shirts with the Acme air logo. Like you see in the upper right hand corner of the, um, of the video right now, if you happen to be watching the video, most people are familiar with our Acme airlines, airline pilot guy show um, logo. But I was thinking, um, you know, watching all this stuff on the news and this coronavirus stuff going on. And I kept thinking about that, um, that British uh, poster that they put out for world war two. Is that right? Captain Nick? Uh, uh, yeah, I believe so. Yeah. And um, so I, I, may, I just came up with a quick design just keep calm and listen to APG. <laughs> so uh, have, a, have a new selection of shirts uh, available for those of you into buying shirts. Um, so or t-shirts um, on the, on the site. So again, that's airline pilot slash store, I think, uh, but it's on the top menu. And um, we're also on social media. We are. You can head over to twitter.com. <clears throat> Your scratchy voice is contagious there, Jeff. <laughs> Sorry. I don't know why my voice, I guess because I haven't been talking very much in the last several right. days. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, head over to twitter.com. We're at APG Crew. You can find all of our individual Twitter information pinned to the top of that page. You can also head over to facebook.com slash airline pilot guy. Uh, also on Instagram at APG Crew. And I will turn it over to Hillel for Slack. Hillel, let's see if we can see if what he's doing. Um, hang on. <laughs> Got always. It's hard for me to find that uh, hidden microphone in the. Oh, here we go. Let me bring it up a little bit. So uh, Hillel is. Uh... Hillel. Hillel, it's time for the Slack promo. Hillel. I think everybody in my house is going. What is he yelling about, though? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Dry off. Okay. Come over here and tell everybody about Slack. APG listeners, please join us on our Slack team. Slack is a communication, coordination, and sharing platform that works on your mobile, laptop, or browser. On Slack, we share news and ideas. We suggest episode and plain tales topics. We plan events and meetups. To get into the Slack team, please email me at slack at airlinepilotguy.com. That's S-L-A-C-K, Sierra Lima Alpha, Charlie Kilo at airlinepilotguy.com. Or send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at Hillel, and I'll send you an invitation. That's Hillel, spelled Hotel India 11 Echo 1, and see you in Slack. All right, thank you. And now make sure you make sure you wash your hands. All right, there you go. He's washing his hands. Thank you. <laughs> and I wish I had more hands to do all this stuff that I'm trying to do. <laughs> it doesn't always work out very well. Uh, and uh, a oh, big can show. Can I just raise this above 50%? Yeah. Uh-oh, do we screw up? No, no, I don't think so. Keep Calm and Carry On was a motivational uh, poster used in World War II, but it never was actually uh, put into public circulation. It was really? printed. Yeah. Two, uh, nearly two and a half million copies were printed 
and it was only rarely displayed in public, um, and it was kept just in case the general populace started to panic, but it was never needed. Huh. Wow. Wow. Interesting. I just assumed it was plastered everywhere, you know? Some were found in the year 2000 at Barter Bookshops in... uh, uh, Alnwick and uh, were reissued then by a number of private companies and it's grown since then. Yes, it has. It's kind of grown, it kind of made a story of its own, yeah. <laughs> even if it wasn't true. Okay, <laughs> great. Uh, thank you, Nick, for that. And uh, also a big shout out to our producer, director, Liz Piper in Hooray! Canada. Yay! Thank you very much for all the help that you do, and uh, you're uh, a big part of our APG crew. And all of you out there, part of the APG community, we love you. Uh, keep strong, and uh, look forward to seeing you again next week. And until then, wishing you clear skies and limited visibility and tailwinds. Take care, and God bless. Stay healthy. Cheers, y'all. See you, everybody. Bye, folks. Keep the blue side up. Good day.